In this episode, we'll be doing TFOS 1877 to 1890. And as always, I hope that you enjoy. Tales from Outer Space 1877. Story number one. The Hero Without Desire. Written by Random3x. I am invincible! The Mad Empress screeches as I approach my blade at the ready. You're not. I mean, look. I've already lobbed off your hand. I gestured to the bloodied limb on the floor. A simple setback with the scepter. I shall be granted what I need, whether it be a new limb or your very demur. I swing my sword and cut off the hand holding the accursed artifact. <laughs> you, you, you! His face was gone ashen now, understandable, as he's been bleeding heavily since my first strike. One would think that he would do something about this with his magic. But no, he seemed intent on monologue. With the final shaking of his stump at me, he collapses, clearly dying. If not, already dead. With that, my duty for this job is complete. Vanquish the evil emperor and retrieve his accursed scepter. Reaching down, I pick up the scepter. I pry the still grasping hand free. I can't help but admire the thing. For all its evil, it was truly well made. Something that belonged in a museum of some kind. Alas, it is slated for dispersal. Still, I can feel a tug at my subconscious, daring me to gaze into the large crystal atop the scepter. I merely give a single glance, but that's enough for it to seize me. Ah, Sir Hero, I welcome you, my new master. I'm now in a pure white room with a figure that can only be described as a pitch black. No features, nothing discernible. Only humanoid figure made of black smoke and night sky. New master, I repeat, the figure nods. Indeed, sir. You have slain my previous master. So my ownership naturally transfers over to you. I see. Well, uh, that's good. Then we don't need to worry while I transport you for destruction. These words send the figure into a sort of panic. Mates, master, I can grant your very desires. I am, after all, a wish demon. Tell me, master, what is it you desire? Meh, I'm okay, thanks. I shrug off its blatant attempts at temptation. Surely you jest, master. How about great riches? As he says this, a mountain of gold appears before me. More money than I've ever seen in my entire life. More than the dragon horde I witnessed when I was just a squire. However, my answer is obvious. Ah, thanks. I wave the demon's offer away, and like a puff of smoke, the gold vanishes. May I ask why, master? The demon seems genuinely curious. Then again, great riches are often atop many wish lists for people. I'm from the Order of Paladins. We have sworn to a life of poverty, outside basic costs. I don't have much need for coin, let alone that much. The demon, for all its lack of features, clearly conveys how stunned it is. Rather, an emotive fellow. Or a glorified 3D silhouette. Yeah, Yes, sir. I see coin doesn't motivate you. 
Then perhaps all the woman that you could ever want. As before, many women, each of a beauty that would make the nymphs jealous, appeared. Or maybe men. With that added words, numerous men of equal beauty appear. Nah, no thanks. I'm asexual. Don't feel the need. Again, the demon is clearly stunned. Though I suppose I am a tough customer. Wealth, lust. What next sin will he tempt me with, I wonder? How about ultimate power? With those words, the images of beautiful people vanish. And in their place is an image of me slaying the demon lord. I'll admit, this tempted me for a moment. But once again, I shake my head. No thanks, sir. I'm of the opinion strength not gained by your own hands is not real strength. The demon is clearly getting frustrated with me now. Wealth, lust, power, all have failed. How about great fame? All heroes wish to be remembered. Now, uh, my deeds, whether they live on, doesn't matter to me. Only that I've done good. The demon is clearly becoming more and more agitated. How about an empire of your own? Uh, I just struck down the evil emperor on my own. Any ruler who rises up can still be cut down. It'd be the height of arrogance to think that I was the exception. Then, uh, how about an audience with your god? His offer actually gives me pause. You could do such a thing. My question is genuine. Indeed, master. You need only seal the deal. It holds out its hand. It is then I remember the rogue's old saying. A deal too good to be true almost always is. Uh, no thanks. I'll meet him when I die. Can't have you monkeys pawing my wish now, can I? The demon clicks its tongue. It seems I hit the nail on the head. Paladin! What is it you actually want, then? The demon gave up with all pretense of temptation, and decided to just outright ask. I have to admire the direct approach. Okay, I'll tell you what, I shall make a wish. You can fulfill anything, right? The demon nods immensely, pleased that the conversation is going the way he likes. Okay, I wish for the full destruction of every single demon and devil in existence on this plane and any other. I also wish that all those with a level of evil in their hearts that would doom them to damnation had their souls banned from entry to the demonic realms. The silhouette figure is frozen. Even without features, I can tell it stuns silence by my wish. I can't do that! Their protest is amusing to me, and I can't help but chuckle. Thought you said you could do anything. I have limits to my power, master. Eliminating all my brethren is beyond my power by a magnitude, let alone starving off all who may yet reform. Then this negotiation is over. I shall take my leave. Thank you. I start walking away towards where I can make out the edge of the room. Wait! I'll give you everything, anything but that. You can be the greatest hero throughout all time. Your story will inspire so many more heroes. The demon is clearly desperate now. As I previously said, I care little about my deeds and remembered, let alone achieving such a goal with my own strength. 
I thank you for the offer, but I must go. This scepter won't purify itself now. With these last words, I punch through the white wall and exit the mindscape. That was fun. I hope we can do it never again, I say to the scepter as I put it in my seating bag for the trip to the temple. End of story. Story number two. Concierge, written by Zentaps. Search inquiry. Reviews for Trident Warpub. Did you mean Hylock's Orbital Station, Sopjanyor, too? Filters. Human Traveler, recent. Less than 100 words. Four stars. Excellent service. Friendly staff requested directions to my gate, and they gave me a shuttle ride straight there. Five stars. Had a great time. My flight was delayed, and one of the staff directed me to a spa on the station. They even provided a coupon for a free entry. It was much like a mud bath, but with a green slime mixture. Quite invigorating. Probably not toxic. Would recommend. Three stars. All right. What is going on? When I got to the station, there was a staff member already waiting for me. They guided me to my connecting flight, and when I mentioned I was thirsty, they brought a, a cart with drinks for me to pick from. It was a little unnerving. Four stars. The Stereosis sells hosted jerk cakes, which taste just like pancakes. Three stars. Do not forget to unpack any food. I got pulled out from brief interrogation for having a bag of lemons in my carry-on. Luckily, they didn't last long and they were quite understandable. I don't even know how lemons got into my bag. Four stars. Staff attendant was very helpful in arranging a room for me after my flight was cancelled. Meals were brought to my room and my next flight was scheduled for me. The room had access to a variety of entertainment, including translated alien films, highly convenient and part of the great service package. Trident, Warp Hub Employee Manual, Concierge. The job requires quick thinking and knowledge of human culture. Job Description. A concierge's role is to ensure human guests have everything they need during their time at the hub. These needs may include anything from arranging transportation to the connecting flight to reserving reservations at a restaurant or other entertainment facilities. Requests are to be fulfilled promptly and discreetly. A concierge has priority authorization to fulfill their tasks. Humans are to be accompanied at all times and not allowed to become uh, bored. Footnote. The last time a human became bored after a delayed flight, they took a detour and they somehow managed to befriend a bar full of assorted aliens, some of whom held active hostilities with each other, but seemed to disregard those hostilities momentarily under the influence of the human. Initially, there were noise complaints which spiraled into an uncontrolled partying involving improvised pyrotechnics, which resulted in the temporary shutdown of Hangar B. As a result of this incident, Humans are to be entertained using regulated station facilities and quickly guided to their outbound destinations. Company policies to ensure humans are monitored by a concierge at all times in order to avoid boredom. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1878 Story number one. Hospice. Written by Wenda Toast. Audio lecture from the head medical examiner of the Galactic Council. Humanity is known for being a sporadic, superstitious, and chaotic people. They have also shown this on many occasions with their actions within this interstellar community. With this preface, you can understand my hesitation when entering their medical field for this report. 
It was with a breath of fresh air when I first visited one of their major medical stations within their home system. It was one of the first off-planet facilities that they constructed, the first being a mining outpost on their moon. The facility I visited was set up as a hospital for the injured miners and grew to the population into a massive campus that it is today. The staff even claims that they are significantly lower gravity of the moon assists with physical therapy, recovery. Now, listing of how humans handle trauma and catastrophic injuries has been done to death. If you wish to read about that, I recommend that you review those reports. In summary, they handle them the same way all other mammalian races do, though they are better outcomes due to their innate durability. No, I will not be reporting on their terminal illness and end-of-life procedures. All the races in this council have their own unique procedures, from the desire for a warrior's death in battle, self-termination, when obsolescence is declared, or even recycling of organs and biological material. We all enter the next life differently. The humans, however, are unique. They are so far the only species that practices the concept of hospice care. Let me explain what exactly hospice care is. Hospice care, as opposed to the palliative care, makes the individual comfortable. It does not try to cure the ailment that they are afflicted with, though treatment is provided if it helps ease their pain. This premise may shock many of you, a simple fact that resources were being wasted on individuals who were terminal shocked me the most. Why would you provide medical care to someone that will only end up dead? Why not provide them with a simple method of self or assisted euthanasia, as many other species do? These questions were answered when I began reading about humanity's dead customs, though they are fractured and belligerent people. With many different cultures, they all similarly treat death. It is inevitable, something that should be avoided, but not feared, something that is even celebrated in some cultures. For example, the human holiday known as Dia de los Muertos is held in the people of Mexican Federation, one of their major players in humanity's political sphere. The holiday features a celebration and remembrance of lost loves family, relatives, and public figures. It is a time of happiness and mourning, and it is one of the best examples I can give you how humans treat death. It is simply a fact of life for them. Now to get back on track, what is the point of wasting resources on a dying person? It is to give them what I've seen as a good death, and to console those affected by the death. You heard me correctly. Hospice care does not just care for the individual, but also the family as well. This is through therapy and financial support. Let me explain to you humanity's modern concept of good death, because throughout their history it is wildly varied. To my shock, it has even fallen in line with some of the other races of this interstellar community. A good death, by humanity's current standards, is one surrounded by friends and family, as painless as possible, and not leaving any affairs unattended. But simply, the person is dying with peace of body and mind. My colleague, a Piluvian, found this to be cowardly. These people are one of those who view death in battle or by combat to be the supposed true good death. But upon attending a viewing of a human known as Michael's death, his opinion changed. Michael was a standard family man who had a large family of five children a loving wife, brother, 
sister, and many friends. He was also diagnosed with a neurological condition known as ALS. Michael could have had it treated with a rather high rate of success, but it ran the risk of all but obliterating his memories. My colleague scoffed when he learned that Michael had turned down the treatment, thinking that the human was afraid of a possibility, but was put into a state of existential dread upon listening to the human's explanation. My memories are who I am. The Piluvian did not have a witty comeback after that. We witnessed how hospice functioned firsthand with Michael, how the nurses and doctors worked tirelessly in their care, making sure Michael was well-fed, groomed, entertained, and that his pain was managed adequately. We also witnessed how human lawyers made sure his affairs were in order and watched as the human religious figures known as priests made sure that he was at peace with himself. Over the span of six months, we watched Michael waste away before our eyes. First, it was little things, having trouble tying his shoes, fumbling with a pen here, a fork there. Then, things began to decline even more so. As the disease spread, he slowly lost the ability to eat properly, dressing and grooming himself. Then, the higher order functions left him. He was bound to a wheelchair, lost the ability to speak, and eventually was bedridden, being a shell of his former self. As per Michael's orders, no extrinsic measures were used to keep him alive, not wanting his children to see their father like that. In his final moments, he was surrounded by those who loved him and cared about him, free from any pain, and assured that they would be cared for. He died in the embrace of his family and friends. He died the good death. End of story. Story number two, Peace by the Sword, written by Weirdo5255. We are peaceful out of necessity, and because of it, we are the most powerful race in this galaxy. For a human to kill another takes but a moment, a sharp knife, or even just a few ounces of pressure, and a man can be easily killed. His corpse discarded as a worthless sack of meat. Indeed. If there has been one constant throughout human's history, it is that they always found new and more creative ways to kill one another. Ways to kill one another more quickly. We invented the spear, the sling, the bow and arrow, the cannon, the musket, bombs and nuclear weapons. Our latest achievement is the power to simply snuff out a star, thus condemning an entire solar system to death. We are a violent, vengeful species, yet throughout our wars and bloodshed ever-evolving, we spawned another weapon. Honor, brotherhood, a place to belong, and a reason to fight. Once, we fought to feed our bellies and rut with our mates in the dirt, and we still do on occasion. Now, though, we fight for grander ideas. We fight not for ourselves, but for those whom do not wish to fight and those who can no longer fight. The bonds we form with one another, those not of our lineage, whom we call brother and friend. It is not a pact we enter lightly, nor one we toss aside with ease. The eunuch of the Mordanon were perhaps the most powerful species in this quarrel. 
Indeed, on our first encounter with them in deep space, our ships and troops were easily dispatched and destroyed in gouts of plasmonic fire. Like in our past, we held our hands out to them in kinship, as humanity has done for every enemy in history. We do not wish to march towards war. We would rather have our pacts and vows ring empty in the air. The eunuch laughed, saying that they did not need a friend. Indeed, even amongst themselves, the eunuch were a violent race, much like the entities of every other race in this chamber's survival of the fittest. Every single culture here is based on that principle except my own. The eunuch fought within their own ranks constantly. The strongest was the leader. The Ryan follows much the same principle, if only more subtly poisoning and forming temporary packs, only to betray one another for personal advantage. The Haiklu literally absorb their weaker peers, taking their memories and experiences, adding it to their own. Every race in this quadrant is constantly at war, not only with everyone else, but with themselves. Each member of the race only cooperating for their individual benefit, their individual advancement. So yes, humanity is the most peaceful species in this room. We do not stab one another in the back. We do not fight for ourselves. We fight for those who do battle beside us, and those who are behind us. The eunuch did not understand and for that error they paid the price of meeting on the battlefield an enemy that did not waver and through sheer force of will destroyed them. The eunuch are no more for their simple fact that humanity has weaponized peace. We fight so that we might return to peace, return to our brothers in arms and to our families. With our weaponized peace, the more you try to fight us, the more powerful we will become, if only to return to it. So I ask this assembly, who among you is willing to make peace with Humanity. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1879. Story number one. It's the Little Things, written by Swegler. Command Log 2178. Day one of new crew trials. I am Captain Ugrak, in command of the expeditionary vessel Discoveries of the Stars and its crew of 100. I am recording this log in regards to a new crew member named Dave Hudson, a human from the newly discovered planet Earth in the locally named Sol system. While I would not usually have to record a specific log in regards to a new crew member, I feel that this is a special case owing to the relative newness of the species and the goal of our mission, which is primarily system exploration and survey. Dave is one of the first human researchers to join such a mission with the Compact Science Council, and should be interesting what his viewpoints shall be. Command Log 2186, Day 8, Human Terms of New Crew Trials Despite the relative newness of a human to the galactic scene, our resident Dave appears to have fit in well, despite the minor issues with the food replicators and flavor enhancement. Dave has taken it upon himself to go over prior data from planetary surveys and reports to familiarize himself with the typical styles of all life forms found and their dangers. A commendable action, in my opinion, as it always helps to be prepared. Command Log 2216, Day 38 of New Crew Trials. 
After nearly a month of travel, in human terms, our ship is beginning to near an unsurveyed class 4 system, and our scanners have picked up the following preliminary results. A low-energy red star with three planets in the life zone, a healthy outer asteroid belt and a couple of small gas giants. Overall, a promising system, both in terms of potential for life and resources for the fledgling colony. Of our newest crew member, the integration to the wider crew of my vessel appears to have gone well, in large thanks to the extensive courses he attended prior to joining the crew and his relaxed nature, helping to ease Dave into a shipboard community. On a personal note, I do have some concern on how the extended voyage has affected his morale, as I've heard rumors of him asking some of the engineering crew why the trip is taking so long, and if there are ways of going faster. As much as I agree in regards of making the trips faster, we do not have the space to fit in a more powerful reactors of the Zerter-class frigate in our vessel to power faster FTL drive, as much as I would like to. As of recording this log, I find his concerns, well, normal for any species first jaunt in our position, to have happened rather quickly, potentially hinting at some impatience. However, I take from that the desire to explore and do its job. Command Log 2225, Day 47 of New Crew Trials I commend the engineering team on finding a degraded power conduit leading to the FTL drive during their routine inspections and have ordered a temporary halt in our calls to be able to fully repair the issue and ensure that we will not be stranded due to the damaged FTL drive or related issue. My team has reported that it will take around five days to complete repairs and inspections of other critical systems, which I am pleased with. As the captain of this vessel, I wish to ensure that we are prepared and safe for whatever we may encounter, as well as so that we do not end up stranded between systems in a crippled vessel. As some of my more rash fellows appear to have done, at least according to their recovered logs. On the topic of the crew trials, it appears that Dave has taken this news well, but appears agitated and withdrawn over the delays, preferring to stay in his quarters and research surveyed fauna and flora, as well as watch hollow recordings of planets this vessel has landed on. While I wish to ensure that every crew trial I host goes well, I have to ensure that the safety of my entire crew and vessel come first. Command Log 2246, Day 68 of the New Crew Trials. We have reached the edge of the outer asteroid belt of the system, and with that we have been able to make full use of our senses. We have confirmed that the asteroid belt has a good distribution of heavy, light, and rare elements. The gas giants are suitable for ship fuel and atmosphere siphoning. The inner system has an asteroid belt with a similar distribution of elements and that the three planets in the green zone appear to sport lower-level lifeforms as indicated by atmospheric readings hinting at no industrial output or even fires used for cooking, nor any artificial emissions to speak of. We are heading in-system after offloading some automated drones to further survey and mark specific asteroids for any future colony. We are headed for the largest of these three habitable planets in order to sit down and do an in-depth survey on the life to be found there and the suitability for known races. On the topic of the crude trials, it seems that Dave is happy about the confirmation that there is life to be surveyed and documented, but still appears somewhat withdrawn about the news. Hopefully, some first-hand experience will improve things. Command Log 2250, Day 72 of New Crew Trials we have chosen a suitable landing site on one of the four continents of what we call Planet Intar, and landed safely. 
Atmospheric readings indicate that this is safe for the majority of crew members to disembark. However, some of the crew will have to wear protective suits or breathers due to the pollen and organic matter in the air. Scans show that there is few signs of fauna large enough to be a threat. Most appear to be herbivorous in Class 1 species, with a few Class 3 predators resulting in population balances. While most fled during the landing, they returned fairly quickly to what we can consider their territory or habitats, which makes it easier for study, but does raise some concerns about attacks from unwary predators. Dave appears to be happier down in the mud, as he says he's doing his research and has already documented several species of flora and fauna, namely some of the less timid herbivores, I'm personally glad, as the issues that were starting to present gave me concern for his species' future in space exploration, and specifically Dave, as his work itself is a good quality, and has the potential of being a valued permanent member of the crew. Command Log 2252, Day 74 of New Crew Trials Documentation and survey of the landing site has been progressing well, with geological, biological, and suitability data coming in nicely. The crew are appreciating working on a planet's surface, despite the efforts of shipboard indemnities to stimulate that same environment. Morale is up, and the crew is overall happy. The only sap in my fur is that some nervousness some of the researchers' teams feel about Dave's hand-on approach to the fauna research. Rather than observe and record from a distance, or safely sedate the fauna to study, he approaches it and attempts to gain trust and have the creature approach him. Dave states that humanity has been doing this with fauna on his home planet since the pre-agricultural times, and he feels safe doing it. I thought that this was a little odd, as that kind of interaction is rare with non-sentient creatures in the galactic community. It appears to increase Dave's morale interacting with these creatures. It was when one of the creatures he had been attempting to gain his trust have approached him and allowed Dave to touch it, he began petting the small furry herbivore that had clicked for me. Out of all the possible things to explore on this planet, it was the hands-on interactions that made him happy. It was the fact that he could physically find and gain the trust of a small creature from this planet and be able to pet it and interact with it. It's the little things that makes humans happy. End of story. Story number two. Enough! Written by the missing thing. We have observed your race for a long time. When you discovered how to create bonds and use this knowledge to create swords, we did not interfere. Although we knew hundreds would die. When you developed iron and steel and used it to create better swords, we stayed silent. Although we knew thousands more would die. As a result. When you discovered gunpowder and used it to create projectile weapons, we said nothing, though we knew the cost would be in the hundreds of thousands. When you developed high explosives and used them to rain bombs on your fellow man, still we didn't speak, though the death toll would be in the millions. When you learned the secrets of the atom and created nuclear missiles of incredible destructive power, we still did not intercede, despite the potential to kill billions. We are silent no more, 
and we beg you to stop your current research, know that it is because the consequences will be catastrophic beyond your understanding. Enough is enough. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1880 The Saltsman's Wish, written by Hidden Fox Clash of Steel The roar of the crowd A lone swordsman approaches the tournament grounds A late entry The tournament and a ready gun The ring of metal on metal Ahead, the cheering of the crowd The first round ended The swordsman approached the entry booth The lone goblin there was preoccupied reading a book Barely sparing the swordsman a glance. The swordsman stood there for a moment, waiting for the goblin. The goblin ignored. The swordsman slammed down with both hands on the table between them. The goblin jumped, their book flying across the tent. The hell do you want? The goblin sputtered. The swordsman pointed at the advertisement for the tournament hanging on the booth. What? You wanna prove yourself, ain't you a human? The swordsman pulled his sword belt off and dropped it onto the table. The scabbard was quite thin. Fine, if you want to get crushed by an orc, that's up to you. The entry fee is five canera. The swordsman pulled five round coins from a pocket, placing each of the gold rim cobalt coins on top of each other. The goblin swiped them off the table, checking their weight. Fine, you can be in. Here's your token. Don't lose it. The goblin slid a small silver square across the table. The swordsman snatched it up, shoving it in his pocket as he readjusted the sword belt. The owl do you think you're doing? Ain't humans bloody pacifists? The goblin said to no one in particular. The swordsman entered the waiting tent. The satire, wearing an official sash, was off in the corner, talking with one of the fighters. He headed over to them. Halfway across the tent, an elf stepped up to him. Hey! Ewan, what are you selling? The elf half jeered, half asked. The swordsman glared at the elf and pulled out the fighter's token. A human fighter? <laughs> this human's going to try and fight! The elf laughed. His voice rang across the tent. His laughter was quickly joined by the other fighters. I'll crush him between me fists. Look how small he is! An orc fighter. Bellow. He's not going to be able to hit me. I'll run him down, a center yelled. He's got the armor. I'll take him down in a single blow. The heavily armored dwarf yelled across the room. What's he going to do? Heal us until we yield, the goblin fighter jeered. The swordsman gripped his hilt, charred wood, leaving ashy imprints. The king's tournament was huge, massive really. Hundreds of fighters, thousands of guests. The booths and tents took up what land outside the Alvin capital city left. The tournament was to celebrate the marriage between the Alvin prince and the dwarven prince. The two largest, most powerful kingdoms united. And so the Elvish king held a grand celebration, and its crowning feature, the tournament. It wasn't just the spectacle that the fighters fought for, though many did. It was that the Elvish king offered the winner one wish. Anything that the winner asked, the king would grant. So the fighters came for glory, for fame, for wealth. But not the swordsman. The first fight would be melee. Ten fighters, 
and one winner. As the nine other fighters emerged into the ring, shouting and gloating, the swordsman said nothing. Groping his sword hilt and standing against the arena's wall, he waited. When the ball of fire thrown to the sky exploded, the fighters charged to the center of the arena, but not the swordsman. The fighters attacked each other with mithril blades and oracalcum fists. Death was possible, but to kill your opponent would bring a penalty, so death was typically avoided. In the melee, fighter after fighter fell until only an orc berserker remained, standing on the bodies of other fighters. He roared his assumed victory. The swordsman walked up quietly and punched the orc in the base of his skull. The orc crumbled to the ground, unconscious. The duels began. The others were of no concern to the swordsman. They only focused on preparing themselves further, physically and mentally. When the swordsman's turn finally came, it was with relief that they stepped into the ring with not fear or anxiety. Their opponent, a centaur, roared a challenge. The swordsman did not respond. The fire mage on the judge's stand launched a fireball into the air. It burst, and as its wisps of flame fell to the dusty earth, the centaur charged. The swordsman gripped the hilt, saw still in his sheath, and stood. The centaur grew closer and closer, its hooves leaving imprints in the dirt. It leveled its long scimitar and prepared to swing. The swordsman stared directly in the centaur's eyes, impassive. At the last moment, the swordsman jumped to the centaur's right. Two quick flashes of light, and the waves of unease disseminated through the crowd as the centaur collapsed. The centaur screamed, its right leg nearly severed. Heels rushed onto the field. The swordsman rubbed their left palm, ashes leaving their marks on his thumb. A new jewel, a new bow. The elvish blade singer faced down the swordsman. Dedication was hard set in the elf's face. But the tinge of anxiety dashed across their brow. They had seen the centaur. The fireball burst. The blade singer began their prayer. Their words filled the arena. Their mithril blade danced in their hands. The swordsman felt the familiar channels of the sword's grip. He moved towards the elf, slowly. Closing the distance, the elf and the swordsman orbited each other, waiting for the other to strike. The crowd, larger than the centaur duel, watched with glee, hoping for a good fight. The elf's prayer hit its peak, and they lunged forward, their blades swinging down. With a clash, a loud clang, a slight unease, the elf's blade was stopped. Another flash, and a gash of pale green formed above the elf's knee. The blade singer swung at the swordsman, trying to hit him. Another flash, another clang. The swordsman jumped behind the elf, cutting up his back. Every swing from the swordsman started and ended the same way, in the sheath. No one had seen the swordsman's blade. One final slash. The elf toppled over, back shredded, legs bleeding, sword arm open from elbow to shore. Night. Each fighter was given a small tent, and the swordsman was in heat. Facing away from the entrance, he read an old, leather-bound book. It was old, cracked, and worn. The pages were yellowed, ripped, and the ink had run in some places. The swordsman read each word, row by row, as he did every night. 
The tent flap rustled. You're not supposed to be here. A thick accent of man's language was unforgettable. The swordsman pivoted, drawing his blade. In the moment, the tip of the sword was a hair away from the neck of the intruder. The intruder, or as many knew her, the chief apothecary of the king, was unfazed. You know they'll be coming for you. You know what you have done. We're supposed to be pacifists. The apothecary was a rarity, even in the capital city of one of the largest empires. A human. So why? Why are you doing this? The swordsman tilted his blade, exposing its black core. The apothecary read the glyphs running down the blade. The names. They saw the charred grip. They read through the lines. A mithril edge coating. I assume it's insulated with a gold layer. Outside, a load mage vomited. This is a warning. They're coming. Don't do this. The apothecary left, and the swordsman sheathed his blade. He knew they were coming. He didn't care. Ten fighters remained. The swordsman entered the arena. His opponent, a goblin spear, was ready. The opponent cheered. The fireball burst. The swordsman sprinted at the goblin. The goblin leveled the spear and held their ground. The swordsman entered the spear's reach. With a flash, he cut the spear in half and kicked the goblin firmly in the head. The goblin fell down, but drew a knife and got back up. This time, the goblin charged. The swordsman jumped to the side, slashing open the back of the goblin's neck. The goblin spun, lunging at the swordsman. The swordsman sliced open the goblin's brow, brown blood dripping to its eyes. The goblin tried to find the swordsman, but was blinded by their own blood. The swordsman kicked the goblin in the ribs, and the goblin flew back, landing hard, and did not get back up. The swordsman turned back and left the arena. Why fight? Another duel will happen now, and he would face the victor. The swordsman walked to the fighters' resting tent. The workers and healers milled around, waiting for the next fight, or the next customer. Oi! Hear me! Someone slurred. The swordsman ignored it. Oi! Hear me! You listen when someone speaks to you! Another voice slurred. The swordsman turned, and three particularly drunk owls staggered towards him. I heard that you heard the blade singer. And the swordsman said nothing. You're gonna have to pay for that, the tall Ustalf said, and threw a punch directly at the swordsman's face. The swordsman stepped to the side, grabbed the elf's arm, and snapped it over his knee. The elf held in pain. The swordsman kicked another of the drunks in the forehead, and then kicked out the legs of the last. The pile of elves yelled in pain, anger, or just pure drunkenness. The next fighter was a satyr. While magic was technically forbidden, you can't really tell a forest creature to not connect to the forest. It was practically impossible not to do. This particular satire used the loophole of having living wood armor. The wood would automatically shift and harden depending on where the satire needed, all while staying relatively light. The fireball burst, and the fight was on. The satire was cautious, but still overconfident in the living wood. The swordsman and satire slowly closed in on each other, circling the center of the arena. They stared directly into their eyes. The satire broke eye contact and the swordsman struck. A slash ended on the living wood, a cut rapidly healing itself. The swordsman's blade could not cut it. A slash at the ankles. The wood surged to meet the blade. 
the small flowers and moss of the armor wilted. The satire swung the club, catching the swordsman on the right shore. The swordsman staggered. A flash, and the swordsman's blade hit the satire's pauldron. Not a slash, however. The flat of the blade hit the wood, and it died. The satire was caught off balance due to the sudden added weight. The swordsman saw an opportunity. Slashing at the flesh just beneath the pauldron, a spray of blue blood blew out. The swordsman swept at satire's legs out, whacking the living wood chest piece with the flat of the blade. It too died. Two flashes and growing unease in the crowd, and two long cuts spewed blue blood of the satire's stomach and collar. The strong kick to the head and the satire stayed down. The last duel. The crowd surged with excitement for the last duel. The swordsman had prepared for this fight. Working on his blade, he stripped off the mithril edge. The last fighter, the heavily armored dwarf that had been mocking the swordsman, roared to the crowd. The crowd roared back. Some of the dwarf's most loyal supporters began to chant his name. And the swordsman entered the arena. There were no cheers for him. No chants. Just uneasy silence and the occasional anti-human slur. The elvish king rose to address the crowd. My wondrous people, my fantastical creatures, I resent the final duel. Our first contestant, the mighty Maudrin himself, Donorath Hillshaker. The dwarf roared again, and so did the crowd. And the final contestant, the mysterious man, the human swordsman. The swordsman said nothing, and so did the crowd. Let the duel begin! All across the arena, mages threw fireballs into the sky, bursting at the same moment. The dwarf readied his warhammer and lumbered forth. The swordsman gripped his hilt and let go, bringing both hands in front of him. He walked towards the dwarf. The dwarf swung his mighty warhammer and missed. The ground where the swordsman had been was now empty. A kick came from the dwarf's left, firm on the ribs. The swordsman jumped behind him and grabbed the dwarf's shoulders and shoved. The crowd gasped as the dwarf fell flat. The crowd cheered when he got back up, but now the swordsman held the warhammer. The dwarf charged the sword. The swordsman dodged to the side and kicked the dwarf in the back of the knee. The dwarf stung. The dwarf stood and lunged at the swordsman's sword, Grasping the hilt, the dwarf pulled it slightly. The dwarf jumped back from the swordsman and opened his mouth to scream. But he never did. The swordsman kicked his chest hard, pushing him down on his back, swinging the mighty warhammer. It hit the dwarf's helmet with a sound like a bell. The dwarf did not get up. The king's booming voice filled the arena. We have a winner! Come forth, swordsman! What is thy wish? The swordsman ascended the stairs on the side of the arena, formed by mages around the arena. The swordsman knelt before the king. He raised a single finger. His hand was turned white as it gripped the sword. The swordsman spoke. Vengeance. Several things happened at once. The mighty doors of the arena flew open. The swordsman drew his blade and cut twice. The king's advisor passed out. Several mages vomited. 
The king's box was painted a pale green with his blood. His first cut sliced his neck open, the flesh quickly turning grey. The second cut his head off. The princess shrieked. Five heavily armored humans rode into the arena. All but the first were wearing a strange swirled metal. The first was wearing a light blue cloak, studded with mithril. Large bands covered their wrists. The swordsman did not sheathe his blade. He held it for all to see. It was not mithril, or aurichalcum, nor cobalt, or gold, or silver. It was black iron. Iron, the metallic bane of magic. The forbidden material. The waves of her knees turned to fear. The king's bodyguard rushed the salt. In the name of Queen Delena, surrender your arms, Malachi of Cavendai. The first human yelled. The crowd, those still paying attention, was shocked. The humans had a prince, not a queen. Queens weren't meant to rule. The first human stood their steed, their armored horse. They nearly collapsed, dropping the thick bands on their wrists. The major still conscious, and those magically intoned felt a great magical strength. The swordsman turned to the first human. In a voice that was full of rage, they screamed, Cavendai is gone! Everyone but me is gone! This man killed them all! I have orders to take you back, dead if need be. Do not resist, Maliki! The swordsman screamed and lunged at the first human. Another human. This one covered in a strange world armor rode in front of the first human and swung their halberd. It struck the swordsman on the left wrist, shearing it off. The iron sword fell to the ground. The first human cast a spell, and the swordsman's wrist froze before it could spill blood. The same happened to his legs. A mage regaining his composure launched a fireball at one of the armored humans. The fireball impacted and fizzled. Only then did the remaining people realize the iron fear came from the mounted humans. The swordsman leapt for his sword in a desperate attempt. In a spray of red, he lost his head. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1881 Transcript, Assembly Speech, War and Terror Written by Alfred Beetle 4,261st year, first season, first rotation. The warlord climbs the speaker's pillar. Assemble dignitaries, my fellow warlords, my people. While it may be presumptuous of me to do so, I will begin my assuming and I no longer need to introduce myself at any length. I also hope that you will forgive me for any wariness I may display. I have just arrived from the taxing battle against the marauders of the center ward regions. Cumbersome titles and warriors' prowess aside, for the duration of the speech, I stand before you simply as a veteran. Three rotations ago, I was formally asked by the assembly speaker to appear in front of you. From our long association, I assume the speaker is hoping I will weigh on the side of aggression, decisively tipping the scales for military action against the children of terror. This is understandable seeing as he knows as much as, or as little, of the actual events in the Three Seasons War as anyone else on the home front. I will do no such thing. In fact, and although my position as a warlord would forbid it, I will actively speak against such action. Sit down, Lord Speaker. I'm speaking from the pillar, and no one in this assembly, not even you, has the right to interrupt me until I've finished. 
Audience chatter. Pauses while the assembly speaker is reseated. You seem shocked, but don't be. If it has to save my people from their own stupidity, I am more than willing to throw my position and repute away. I have spoken with my fellow surviving warlords from the Three Seasons War, and they support my decision. We, veterans, of that long series of relatively minor fleet actions, which is what it really was, not a war, want to bring a dire warning to you all. Also, though it is against custom, today we want to tell you publicly what happened during those three seasons. The warlord indicates the true remembrance. We disdained the humans when we met them, all of us, to a lord. Ever since we first found them, the children of terror did nothing but quarrel amongst themselves. They have never, never lived under a species unifying rule, not to mention such a piece. They will quarrel over the most trifling of reasons, over resources where there is no need, over pride where there was no insult, and over differences in interpretation so small that they are irrelevant. In the early days we often fought the valiant inside human territories, our fleets skirmishing through their space, a detail they hardly seem to care about. In fact, for reasons obscured by the Byzantine self-contradicting ideologies that they would sometimes even ask us to fight close to certain other human settlements in hopes of scoring collateral damage on their enemies. Naturally, we did not hold the humans in very high regard. Whatever one may think of their primitive ways, this has to be said, however. The children of terror are traders in heart and soul. Perhaps this is exactly because of their splintered nature as a species. Who can know? Although their technology couldn't match ours, they could offer abundant resources and an endless pool of cheap, efficient and crafty labor. We happily let them repair and restock our ships for what was, for us, a laughable price. Soon, even the valiant, as disgusted as they were with the humans' barbaric obsessions with commerce, were docking their ships at the humans. We may never know if that particular cultural schism was the main reason the Valiant eventually started seeing the humans as exploitable, but I'm sure that that was at least part of it. Collateral damage turned into accidents due to bad intelligence. Accidents turned into incidents. Eventually, incidents became raids. At every step of the way, the Valiant was spurred on by shocking lethargy by the human race as a whole. I will admit... I was at the time quite disgusted myself. A fifth of a season into the systematic raiding, only the neighboring polities had even cared to send any supplies to the victimized outposts. Some of the more cutthroat cliques of the region even capitalized on the opportunity and attacked their weakened neighbors. Seeing the spoils of the valley were gathering, my war council was actually contemplating an offensive into human space. If the valiant were gaining so much from smiting the barbarians, why should we not? Only my warrior's pride made me shy away from attacking so defenseless an opponent. Defenseless. Words are inadequate to describe how lucky that hesitation was. Exactly halfway into the season, the Valiant made their terrible strategic mistake. I expect that only a very few select watching or listening to my speech will recognize the name Pillars of Hope. Hope is was a large human settlement 
the largest outside of the human's own solar system. After a particularly bad string of defeats at the hand of our fleets, the main Valiant battle group was pushed deep into human space and fell into orbit around hope. At this point, the Valiant openly despised the weak humans and expressed it all across their empire. The humans were, to them, animals, the butt of a cosmic. The camaraderie of the Valiant Battle Group was the epitome of what we would call the military class. It was strong, prideful, the tempered in the thousands of battles, and it was already furious about the success of defeats to our fleet. It demanded the resources that its battle group needed, and its rage only grew when the inferior humans had the gall to demand trade on equal terms. Score, the commandieri had several orbital superstructures obliterated by its humans. The humans did not take the swell, and a few of the diverse autonomous polities in the settlement initiated forceful actions against the hostile battle group. The Valiant, not understanding the lack of coordination in human culture, or not caring about it, responded with extreme prejudice, bombing the settlement's surface, killing tens of thousands of humans, the situation escalated into chaos within a quarter of rotation. Somehow, the children of terror managed to bring down one of the battle group's ships of the line. The Valiant responded with exterminant weapons. Cities were razed to the ground. Escaping civilian ships were destroyed in space. Millions died. It was a tragedy. Finally, the Valiant salvaged what they needed to repair their ships and left. And I hesitated for the second time. Finding spoils gained by senseless destruction, such as that wrought as hope, even less appealing than before. This hesitation I also admit freely in front of you all, at the cost of some of my warlord's pride. The humans came to us a tenth of a season later, asking for a military pact. I had, at this point, put hope out of my mind and occupied myself with other concerns, so I did not pay much attention to the delegation at first. I had to keep myself from laughing when the envoys presented themselves as speakers for all of humanity. I wasn't the least convinced that the children of terror had learned to cooperate. I accepted their bargain, flippantly, thinking that the humans' help might at least lend us a logistics edge now that their attitudes to the Valiant had soured. A logistical edge, I thought. The warlord indicates regret over a grave miscalculation. From what I've learned of humans, and I would like to think that I've learned quite a lot, for one of my species, the primary reason they act so irrationally is because of their fierce individuality. Consensus is always something vague and approximate in human cultures, never definite. Ideologies spread, mutate like a disease, and each human is a mix of a million ideas, often self-contradictory, and somehow they still muddle through. I once asked a human leader I got to know, called Raddy, about this seeming paradox. After laughing and thinking about it, she answered me this. I understand the idea may seem funny to you, but we actually consider ourselves quite good at cooperation. It happens all the time, but simply at lower levels than your species is used to. Consider the ocean. It is a hodgepodge of creatures and forces, but just sometimes, under the right circumstances, the waters all move in the same direction. And then, no land touching the water is safe. Every time I meditate on the war, I still remember that analogy. 
and the glittering of those small predatory eyes that had watched the pillars of hope burn. At first, the war continued unaffected. We didn't expect much when the human fleet sprang into action, and so stayed aloof, expecting the humans to suffer a humiliating defeat. Then reports started coming in of some early successes. I attributed these to luck, surprise, and tactical retreats by the valley, but did not wish to spurn such a generous gift of fate, and so we also attacked. In what was later dubbed the Third Spring Offensive, we pushed well into valiant territory, still arrogantly attributing our victories to our warriors' acumen. As we reached the first major valiant installations, the humans again sought an audience with me. They asked for our permission to spearhead the assault on the valiant settlements, a proposition I gladly accepted, as I had been considering a way to minimize the casualties from such an action. Why not let the humans soften up the worlds first, we thought. As the humans were still waiting for reinforcements, I took the time to visit their fleet and study their data. I was appalled at first. I thought they were simply lying to my face. On board their flagship, the humans presented maps showing how they had successfully ousted valiant battle groups from the entirety of their territory. I did not believe them. How could such a thing even be possible for such a technologically undeveloped race? I became convinced that I was being held for as a fool as I was led around to inspect their arsenal. Not even their flagship carried the energy projection weapons. The bulk of their weapons were the incoherent mix of simple rocketry and nuclear fission or chemical warheads. Brute explosives. Using such primitive weaponry to earn any effect would require minute orchestration of entire fleets. Something that I was completely convinced the humans could never pull off for the duration of the Valiant campaign. I returned to my ship, fuming, and immediately ordered my own troops into action. Soon then after, the rotation of the battle began. Against the humans' objections, I had ordered my fleet into the first wave, rather than have them be delayed by the humans' wreckage. And so, already before the human reinforcements started moving, we moved against the Valiant settlements. We dispatched the orbital installations in short order and began to descend upon to the military outposts. It was heavily defended. I had expected the battle to be hard but glorious, and it was. We were the first on the ground, performing the elegant dance we had done so many times before with the valley troops, flanking, attacking, retreating, exchanging fire here and there, attempting to outmaneuver the enemy, and then drive them back out of the territory. Then... Uh, the children of terror came. The warlord indicates a foul omen. One thing I understood at that moment, why minute orchestration was not necessary for human warfare. I cannot adequately describe the scale of what happened during that rotation. Around us, the skies literally darkened with their dropships. Thousands upon thousands upon thousands of humans with their simplistic slug throwers and their ridiculous chemical-powered vehicles. The first ones to touch down were no match for the Valiant, who swiftly cleared a path for themselves and retreated into a walled bunkers. They were so sure in their victory, so superior to the smallish weak bipedals in every conceivable way, so arrogant and so sorely mistaken. I learned only later that the destruction of hope had done something across all of human space 
flipped some kind of ancient behavioral switch. As I told you before, the humans are fiercely independent creatures. But hope had accomplished what thousands of seasons of human history had been unable to. It united the vast majority of the species under a cause, and precisely because of what I witnessed in a nameless valiant installation, I shall never forget Rani's words, and I advise you to do not either. When the ocean moves as one, no land touching the water is safe. To grasp what it was like, imagine a skitterer hive, aggressive and hungry, frightening, certainly but never a real threat to our species, despite the occasional frontier wars. Why? Because the Skitterers, in actual fact, are very few in number, and most of them are by far non-sentient workers, which obey and die blindly. They are easy to outmaneuver and outgun, even in great numbers. But the humans are different. United in purpose, they become like a hive, Hundreds of thousands, perhaps millions of warriors, but sentient. Every one of them, sentient. A skitterer warrior will lose its limbs, limp around harmlessly, and die. A human warriors will stop, administer medical aid, and continue to fight. They will drag their wounded comrades off the field to be treated, down to the last one. They can operate completely autonomously. And finally... Under the right circumstances, they are willing to die for victory. We, the warrior class, fought the Valiant for glory and repute, always in small numbers, always leaving an escape vector open. The humans fought to annihilate. We watched in horror as the humans, with their strange alien ways of thinking, completely ignored generations' worth of military orthodoxy and succeeded beyond our wildest nightmares. There was no elegance or efficiency, only effect. When the Valiant moved too far away, the humans would tear into them with massed rocket attacks. When they came too close, a wave upon wave of warriors would spill over them, heedless of their own safety. When they hunkered down in buildings or tunnels, the humans would flush them out with mad primitive equipment, barely worthy to be called weapons, can you imagine a weapon that sprays barely controllable incendiary fluids through a hose? Or a weapon that releases toxic gas or burns hot as a star surface when thrown at the enemy? The children of terror used these, and many, many more. And when all of these would fail, they would throw themselves at the valley, twice their size, with metal blades fixed to their slug throwers. A sixth or a rotation later, the installation was gone. By the time I returned to the fleet, the battle was almost over. The entire system was being overrun by constellations of clumsy human carriers. A cold gripped my soul, and all my limbs tingled in horror as I realized that everything I had seen on the human flagships had been true. I knew then that the Valiant Empire was already defeated, and their armies in ruins the Three Seasons War ended less than half the season later. This is the truth of that war. The Valiant are now a remnant of their former empire. Their defeat was total. We fought well, and we would have won in the long run. But the truth of the matter is that the Children of Terror united 
did in a season what we were unable to even dream of in five. Had they not joined the war, it might have well been known as a posterity as the Seven Seasons War. Ironically, once it was clear that the war was over, the mighty human fleet immediately fractured. The first falling out actually happened inside the Valiant home system, only three rotations after the Valiant's unconditional surrender. Because of some unfathomable political reason, two smaller ships opened fire on each other, forcing the crews to scuttle both craft and be ferried home aboard another human ship. A long time has passed since the war, and the humans behave as if it never was. In fact, trade with the former Valiant Empire is flourishing. But now I hear some of our younger generations, matured after the war, clamor for victories and honor in battle. They use the same words as the Valiant did, that humans are uncivilized and barbaric that they are weak and do not deserve their elevated position. Some of those younger will perhaps decry my speech as cowardly or weak. To those doubters I say only this. I have been a warlord for my entire matured life cycle. As I mentioned in the beginning of my speech, I come before you directly from a skirmish at the central border. If you wish to test my courage and warrior skills, I welcome you to try. But do not disrespect my experience. To date, I cannot say I fully understand what bizarre laws human coalitions are born and reneged on. But since the war, I spent much time in their mad cities, learning to know their ways. And I've caught a glimpse of cooperation here and there. And the most important lesson that I've learned, and that I wish to impart upon you all, is this. Do not give the children of terror a common enemy. And if you must, make absolutely sure that it is not you. The warlord climbs down the pillar. The audience remains silent. End of transcript. Tales from Outer Space 1882 Not so different, after all, written by scientific theory. Edward was a nice boy. He had a bright blonde hair, chubby cheeks, and piercing blue eyes. He made his first friend when they poked his cheeks and said he looked funny. Growing up, he wanted nothing more than to relax on the farm and watch the roads work. He went his entire life without so much as a fistfight. Had peace with the world and the people around him. Edward had never wanted to hurt anyone. Unfortunately, the universe didn't much care for what he wanted. I suppose that's just the way things go, he thought to himself, looking over at Sarah. She'd always been gorgeous, a wild soul. They'd made fast friends in childhood and had never quite grown up. She was the one who had convinced him to follow his family's military tradition and join the civilian defense force when hostilities had exploded seemingly overnight. He nudged her with his leg as she rolled over, a soft sound escaping her throat. He stared for a moment, thinking back on the near two decades they'd known each other, the trouble that they'd been in together, the time that they tried dating, but both found themselves more comfortable as friends. He rolled her back over, hair cascading over the ruin of her face. Plasma pistol, he guessed, judging from the dead arvine whose blade was still buried in her stomach. Not 
that the killer had fared any better. Her assault rifle had carved a bloody path all the way through it. Him? He won. Edward sat up, or rather, Edward tried to sit up. There was a particularly nasty laser wound that seemed to have glanced through his left kidney. Had the doctor survived the unfriendly suggestions crash landing, he likely would have been concerned. At least, it's cauterized. Little victories. Edward sat up and screamed into this desolate wasteland they had fallen from the sky to die in. His howl rang out alone. Things went back for a moment. He came back, fuzzily remembering he had lost his kit in his crash. Careful not to disturb her, he slowly rifled through Sarah's loadout until he found her medical pack. No spare kidneys. Yes, I'll have to settle. The thought Riley lingered while he pumped the needle cap and pressed it into his stomach. The excruciating agony of these worlds gently faded to a dull, grinding pulse. Taking a moment to look around, he gazed over the battlefield. The unfriendly suggestion had crashed about a quarter of a mile to his left, and the alien vessel had slammed down a nearly equal distance to his right. A brief crash in the sky and both the converted mining vessels and the Arvine Corvette fell onto this barren world that had nothing more to offer than a surprisingly breathable atmosphere. Both marooned on an empty planet, and we just had to run and over and kill each other. For what? The both of the bodies lay scattered carelessly, like so many forgotten toys. His breath was the only disruption of the tomb-like silence that had settled so heavily upon him. Looking down, his gaze settled on the trenching tool, neatly collapsed, as though it was waiting to be put away. I guess that's a start, he thought to himself. Hours later, he sat back against a rock looking at a field around him. Don't much like this sort of planting, he panted heavily. As he'd worked his way through the field, he tried to treat himself using the now discarded field kits. But after a while, the wound on his stomach had just split and blood began steadily leaking from it. Still, Edward was happy. He'd been able to bury all the unjustly dead, able to give them some semblance of respect. Looking up again, shovel propped on shoulder, he smiled at the orderly rows that now marred the endless waste. Everybody had place, shallow throw it may be. His was above ground against this rock, and that was okay. Things went black for a bit. A sound disturbed him. Looking up, he frowned as he noticed one body was out of place. That's not right, he thought as it strode towards him. Edward's bright blonde hair was streaked with blood and dirt, the chubby cheeks white with blood loss. His once piercing blue eyes tried to focus through the haze. And Arvine, hadn't he buried them all? Gathering the last of his strength, he spoke to the phantom, Sorry, mister. I don't think I can rightly dig a spot for you. He gestured at the graves. And everything else is taken. He paused and shuddered for a moment. Guess you'll just have to grab a spot here. The phantom stared at him for a moment, before looking out at the field. Two battered ships framed in an endless brown vista, breathtaking in its vastness. So open, it had almost pulled the breath from your lungs. Edward coughed for a moment and the phantom looked back down, flint black eyes taking in the shovel leaning against his shoulder. Sorry, Dad. 
I don't think I'm coming home. With that last thought, Edward let go. The Arvine stared at his body, wispy blonde hair ruffled by the wind, soft smile on his lips. It looked back at the graves, unmarked and unnamed, only distinguished by either a human or an Arvine weapon laid at its feet. Unsure what to do, it took pictures of the scene and walked back to its ship to send a report. The distress beacon had claimed life in danger so recently, now only marked a grave. There was a place on a planet where a peace accord had been struck, despite the bitterness held by some. After the confused and disorganized fighting, it was widely celebrated. The two sides tentatively reached out, and finding each other so similar, grasping tightly, that they might never slip apart. A day to remember. A memorial was born. At this place on this planet, where the peace had finally been found, a monument was built. At first, it had confused many, for it was not a grand or glorious, nor was there any clear connection between the species other than a human sculpted by Arvine hands. It was a simple stone statue of a young man with a shovel, leaning back against the large stone block. On closer examination, one could notice a poorly bandaged wound on his stomach and a faint smile on his face. In explanation, there was a small plaque next to him. This is to remember the unnamed man who gazed upon the carelessness of death and willingly took up its weight. He was found on a forgotten planet in a little notice system where he brought dignity and honor to the undignified war. This is to remember those uncounted souls that we buried in our folly. To remember so that we may never again add to their ranks. Those who bought peace for others and paid in blood. To recognize that we buried our brothers and sisters, our sons and daughters, together. For the dead whose war has ended, take a moment to remember their lives, spent with valor and distinction for a cause greater than themselves. Though gone they live on in the world they've left behind. For the living whose wounds still bear down on them, rest for a moment with one who also understood, who knew what it was to carry a great weight. He may no longer be able to take another's burden, but perhaps he can still help lift it for a time. May we never again raise an arm in violence that doesn't carry justice in its fist. Later, a young woman would visit the memorial and recognize the contented expression from another time and another field. And through tears, another plaque was added to commemorate her once older brother, Edward T. Huxley. He would have been happy. He had never wanted to forget anyone either. End of story. Story number two. Glorious, written by Weijin Warrior. You should have seen it, one of the bar patrons vocalized, gesturing with several forelimbs. It was glorious! Well, up to a point. The colors, another intoned after putting an empty vessel down. The flapping banners in green and purple, the gleaming steel, the, the gore and blood. A voice from a corner interjected. 
the gleaning steel, the second patron repeated. The disciplined ranks of 10,000 soldiers bedecked with pink lace. Glorious, the first patron agreed. Glorious and brave. Stupid, stupid and suicidal, the voice of the corner pointed out, ignored by the other patrons. Pink and violet, another patron hissed, all lined up in a geometrical perfection around the enemy's stronghold. Magnificent! Not like their enemy, the first patron exclaimed. Who were dressed to hide? And hide they did, aye, in the holes in the ground. Shameful to hide where the 3D crews of half the galaxy were streaming directly. And the general, the first patron stated after emptying another glass. The bravado, the courage, as he walked out in front of his army. Oh, the taunts that he flung at the enemy for hiding. All legs spread wide, the hissing patron said. Four ray guns in his hands as he challenged the enemy commander. I recall it vividly, the second patron added. He had positioned himself so the light caught him just so the 3D crews to capture the glorious detail. And then, the human in the corner said, as he stood up and tossed the glass on the floor, one of our boys put a bullet through both of his brains, and we dropped mortar rounds in the whole army, which the stream showed in glorious detail, I might add. The rest of the patrons watched as the human strolled out, everyone taking a step back to give the biped more space. The first patron accepted a new drink from the bar spot. It was glorious, he repeated, up to a point. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1883 Story number one. I thought I saw you somewhere before. Written by Admiral Marsupial 3. Malin looked at the room he suddenly found himself in, and would have probably crapped himself if this wasn't a dream. He looked around the LSD-inspired fortress that reminded him of a D&D castle model he used as a kid that had been fed through a kaleidoscope. He could see row upon row of what could only be described as steampunk owls set to attention with weapons at their sides. Alan turned to where they were all focused on their gaze and saw what must obviously be their leader. The glowing eyes and burning horns gave it away. The King Steam Elf Punk looked at Alan and spoke in a voice clearly inspired by every generic fantasy big bad leader ever. I have summoned you to my fortress to meet your doom. Once I have broken your body, I will use the Holy Spirit Prison to rip out your soul, and I can torment it for the rest of time. The KSEP, as Alan had come to shorten it to, drew a weird glowy sword that looked like it was made with glass and swung it at his head. Captain Alan Richards woke up. He decided that since he was awake now, he may as well check in with the bridge crew to see if there were any updates while he slept. And he knew Lieutenant Moore ran 40k sessions and his dreams had given him an RPG fantasy itch. He checked if the ETA had changed. No, sir. We were about to wake you. One hour to target. He wondered what they would find at these mysterious coordinates in the void between the stars. All he knew was that one of those projects that he had never existed had found what could be the source of the mysterious psychic attacks 
that had plagued the galaxy for millennia. The Heike had been suffering particularly bad recently. They were considered humanity's closest allies, having lost the planet as a result of coming to humanity's aid during our first and so far only interstellar war. As a result of this, and humans' lack of psychic presence, humanity had said they would pursue this for the Heike, who wouldn't even be able to approach these coordinates without dying. What horror would they find in the void? Arkit emerged from the chronology scanner with a harsh gasp as he stunned look at his eyes. It couldn't be. How could such a chaotic primitive ape threaten the ancient Tuwu? Grand mechanical priest Arkit would have executed any biological being who said such a thing to him out loud. But even he couldn't question the holy time seer. He had seen a species his kind had never felt only observed through the eyes of psychic cattle across the galaxy as the two fed. They were the one of the mundane races, no psychic powers, so of little interest to the two as they were not thought to be advanced or strong enough to be a threat. But the vision said the specific one would find the two homeworld. Two Prime and its 13 colonies had remained hidden from the galaxy for 300,000 years and who suspected its existence never even began to look for the right place. And the few that stumbled upon the right place path, through dumb luck, never survived long enough. If this human found them, others would follow quickly. The Time Seer had showed him these humans destroying the god crystal of Mount Tila. If that happened, the psychic shock would kill most of the Tuwu on the homeworld instantly. The sudden discomfort of the god crystal, along with the distance from the Harmony Choir on Tuwu Prime, would kill all those on the colonies, just slower and more painful. Arkit decided to end this problem now. It would have seemed a massively excessive use of force against such an undeveloped primate just hours ago, but he connected himself to the great Dream Snatcher, another one of the holy machines of the Tuwu. The strength of this vision had convinced him that humans were not to be underestimated, and it seemed to fit the divine plan. One holy machine to destroy the threat identified by another. No matter how great the warrior this human may be in his armor, with his weapons in hand, no matter how great a pilot he may be with his warship at his command, Arkham won. No matter how they would destroy him while awake, while they were asleep, he could teleport them to him, completely unarmed. He could then easily defeat them while he had all the advantages of his weapons, his armor, his troops. The Dream Snatcher hummed as it synchronized with Arkit's mind, using the Vision's figure burned in his mind to reach out to the attached soul, and allowed Arkit to drag even this mundane through the psychic plane to him. Arkit stared at the spot that had just contained the bipedal ape, prophesized to bring ruin to his people, one that after being summoned across the void of space against its will and surrounded by a thousand warriors and the grand mechanical priest, most powerful of the ancient Tuwu, and just looked around with a disinterested expression on its dopey-looking face, completely ignored his threat to tear out his soul, then disappeared unharmed as the soul prison hit him. The divine blade, not tasting life essence, upon being swung for the first time since its creation eons ago. Arkit was so stunned by this turn of events, he never noticed the proximity warning. Not quick enough, anyway.
end of story. Story number two. The Seven Deadly Strengths, written by Hilaria. In several human religion, there is a notion that there are seven deadly sins, which are vices that are considered immoral. However, I would argue that these emotions are not man's greatest sins, but strengths. Pride. In those religions, pride is the idea that one is worth more than they really are. But that idea is not without merit. It is with good reason that human engineers are amongst the most sought after in the galaxy. It is with good reason that humans have a near-perfect military record. It is with good reason humans can take pride in their work, not from an inflated ego, but from prior proven results. Greed Greed is the human desire for more, even if it would endanger or take away from someone else. Now, if a species is confined to one planet, with a very limited resources, this is terrible. However, now that humanity has reached the stars, there are now enough planets for every single human, Zlop, Tiru, and every other sentient being to each have their own planet, which creates near-limitless resources. Instead of hindering them, humanity's greed has led them to control vast swaths of resource-rich territory, turning them into an economic powerhouse. Lust. Lust is most commonly used to describe the desire for a sexual relationship with another human. It is, in short, what allows human colonies to grow exponentially large in a very short amount of time, going from a population of a few dozens to several billion in record times. It is also a key part of compassion, which we discussed in another interview. Envy. Envy is, in my opinion, the most important of the sins or strengths. It is the sentiment that this felt when human desires something that someone or something else has. Before humanity reached the stars, this was often confined to objects. Then humanity met the flying Zlop. And then humanity met the unaging Yeth. Then humanity met the Wuzd. Gluttony. You may think that the desire to eat more couldn't possibly be a strength. And then you realize that there have been multiple cases of humans growing so large that their fat alone was enough to stop a bullet. Wrath. I don't see any Taruk around here. Do you? Sloth. In a third great galactic war, Admiral Trent of the human navy was so lazy that he routinely avoided traps by them drifting out of position before he arrived. Or, if the traps were manned, his enemies getting convinced that he must have gone around them. On a side note, have you seen an actual sloth? Those things should not exist. End of story. Story number three. Angels, written by a glass of whiskey. There had been foretelling, ancient tales of mystical beings, in appearance beyond comprehension to mortal minds. Sometimes, bringers of terrible wrath. Sometimes, a hand of help in desperate times. The land itself was shaped by their mere presence. Every person in the village lifted their eyes and beheld the being descending from the sky. His body was the color of the purest snow, face like lightning, eyes like flaming torches. His arms and legs gleamed red by the color of the dawning sun. In everybody's minds, there was only one thought, one possible response. The being's voice was heavy as lead, 
I have come to... Would you... Please, could you... Just stop screaming? Soft thuds were heard when they fell to the ground. As lungs were expelled of air, their brains shouldered the mantle of responsibility and continued to screaming internally, paralyzing them. Some of the small children who didn't understand what all the fuss was about now saw their parents falling down, for all the apparent reason killed by the foreign creature, and out of a mixture of fear and terror started to cry. Soft sobbing. Good! Now I have come to... As soon as he started, the rest followed suit, until there was like an orchestra of badly played violins. Oh, for crying out loud, I give up, said the foreign creature, and ascended again into the sky, after having spread its message of fear and terror. First contact would have to wait until another time. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1884 A new game written by Storm the Castle. Amon Durst. The communication. Said Lifkist, who has surprisingly few interactions with the humans that other humans referred to affectionately as a resident nerd. But what she had seen was confusing. While not physically imposing like many of the other creatures, honestly resembling their females more than what she knew their males looked like, he was nonetheless well regarded and commanded a certain amount of respect, even from a captain who commended the highest respect of the warrior-turned-worker, Sai Li, or Kissy, as her co-workers had started calling her. On top of that, he was a standoffish, frequently ducking others in order to do whatever it was he did. But when problems came up with the function of the ship, he was often the first called as opposed to the engineering where she worked. Moreover, he often ended up being the only one called, as he frequently resolved the issues. Whatever they were. More confusing still. He was stronger than her. Stronger than the clan Ifa. Her people were one of the only that outsized humans in height and bulk. And while she wasn't the strongest of her species, she still boasted a warrior's prowess. However, one day she'd entered a physical improvement room on the ship earlier than usual. Only to come across Amon as he lifted the impossible metal plates. As many on the ship did for exercise and recreation. He'd taken one look at her, racked and bolted, as though in fear, which she should have understood if, following his departure, she had found herself unable to replicate the feat. Even with only three of the four arms she'd been born with still present, the fact that the tiny man had managed to trounce her in matters of strength drove her, as a captain would say, up the wall. However, she would now get a resolution to her confusion. Selif had been driven from her home world for two reasons. One, she'd been mutilated in battle but failed to die. By the captain, ironically, and so had no place amongst her people as a free citizen. Second, there had been born a mutant, the soft protrusions on her thoracic region, which took the place of otherwise hard and durable carapace that covered the rest of her resembled the memories of human females. And since the clan Ifa had no tradition to cover up their chests, since they weren't supposed to have anything worth covering up, Selif often found herself being stared at by human males, their face red as they tried to reconcile her fairly human appearance with the fact that she didn't actually have the so-called memories. 
Ammon, in particular, was susceptible to this quirk of her physiology, which she was now using to her advantage to more or less pin him in place. Two of her hands on the wall near the side of his head, and her remaining one on her hip, forcing him to look at either chest, which he found fascinating, apparently, or a face, the two of which he had switching between regularly. Oh, what, uh, uh, how, wow, you, you are something, I mean, um, uh, what's, uh, uh, what's going on, Kissy? he asked. Satisfied her mutations were finally doing something helpful for a change, Zaylif answered him, Human Ammon, I joined this crew because your captain defeated and mutilated me in the war between our species. It was the only place one of my sort could theoretically have come to, though, admittedly, I have expected to be a slave. Ammon nodded his recognition, recalling the spectacle she made of herself when she first showed up. However, much to my consternation, I have come to the conclusion that you are regarded by the humans of the ship in much the same way as I regard the captain, in spite of the dramatic difference between you. I want to know why. Are you a warrior? Is your mind and physique some sort of deception? Why is it that you seem to command so much respect amongst your peers, in spite of the fact that you seem to be outclassed by them in every way? Oh, uh, is that all? he asked, seeming surprised. Actually, he and I... He stopped mid-sentence, and she could tell that he'd fallen into thought. Ammon's eyes narrowed, and he bared his teeth at her, which she had come to learn was a smile, though its meaning could be just as malicious as it could be positive. This one felt malicious. Actually, what do you do for recreation, Kissy? he asked. Off-put by the dramatic shift in topic, she nonetheless answered, though with a suspicious air to her, even pulling away in case he intended to attack. Nothing really. The Clan Ifa do not commonly practice recreation, preferring to make full use of the time we are given in service to our masters or people. Salif had found the stretches of time during which she had no assigned tasks maddening at first, but she had recently come to appreciate the peace, and had taken up meditation. As the Clan Ifa, consular, a wise man, would, and had found it rewarding practice. For, what do you ask? I've got a trade to offer for you. That's why... Salif was in a room with Ammon and fairly recently recruited operator Thrust, the chief of security, Mr. Neeson, and a young human male she didn't know, but had introduced themselves as Alan. In front of them was a computer screen preloaded with a series of information from a game that she had been asked to participate in. The trade Ammon had offered was as follows. He would tell her anything she wanted to know about himself and even the crew members, within the bounds of personal space, of course and in exchange, she would participate in their game as their missing fourth player. The other three had apparently been playing with Ammon for almost six months, only for that tale to end and a new tale to require a fourth. Games in human society last months on end. Even their pastimes are incredible. No wonder we lost. Human Ammon, this game you call Jail and Lizards, Dungeons and Dragons, he corrected. Her translator was still saying the same thing, so she just mimicked him. Dungeons and dragons. You say the purpose is to pretend to be a member of another species and act out the story, as though we were with this person, and it is unscripted? Correct. It's difficult to explain the draw. You either get it or you don't, and the only way to find out is to play. We can't play effectively without a fourth player, not until level five at least. 
So, if you can come to our sessions, I'll tell you three things you want to know about anyone you want, myself included. So long as it isn't a violation of HIPAA. I see. She didn't, actually. And this story, uh, this scary chair, Eldritch Throne, he corrected. Right. It is a story you wrote yourself and want us to play through. Right. This won't make a lot of sense, but it's a combo of Lovecraft and high fantasy. I'll walk you through during the character creation. Silov was apprehensive about the game and its concept. That not at least of which was due to the fact that her people weren't known for having vivid imaginations, and another being that she didn't understand half of what was being said. However, her curiosity outweighed her trepidations, and so she tentatively agreed, Very well, but I will abide no snickering should I experience issues, and I demand you explain the list of races. Many seem human-based, and yet humans are apparently the last of them. What is this? Oh, those are just... A small human male attempted to answer, only for Mr. Neeson to cover his mouth. Extinct species, he answered, and the reaction from the two non-humans of the group was dramatic. Extinct? Austras, the Chitin. What do you mean? The powers listed for them are to possess their lifespans. How could such races be anything but dominant? The question Seelif wanted answered herself. The descriptions of some of the more human-like races, like elves and dwarves, were understandable with longer lifespans or higher physical strengths, but the command of the others had a primordial forces called magic at their reading. In particular, the race called Tiefling, which resembled an elf sigh of the greater elf empire, had her worried, and she resolved to investigate the elf sigh in private to find out if they had powers and were in fact formerly fellow deathworlders alongside humanity. That's cause humanity had two things none of them could compete with. Numbers and progress, declared the thickly built man. His hand still slapped to cover what was perhaps his young spawn's face. But we outdeveloped him faster than we could compensate for, and those that didn't join the heredry line of humanity were wiped out. Amon, a pained look on his face with a clenched fist illustrating her sorrow over the truth of humanity, said, A tragedy of our sordid past. Just imagine what we could have accomplished alongside the Draglins or the Nephilim had we but settled our differences peacefully. Mr. Neeson nodded solemnly, and both Thrust and Seedliff could feel the tragic sorrow on the falling of their ancestors expressed here, and both joining the humans in a moment of silence for their loss. It wouldn't be the first time a sapient species had competed for dominance on its own world with another, resulting in the losing side being removed from history. But for this many races to have been lost, truly, humanity's ruthlessness was a terror to behold. Just as the compassion could be equally shocking. Now then, before that, Amon suddenly seemed to want to change the subject. What three questions do you have for me today? He asked. And she immediately answered with the three that had been burning her the longest. Yes. First, why are you regarded so highly on a crew that seems to value physicality? Second, how is it that you are so strong in spite of your physique? Finally, why does the captain defer to you so often, even when the issue is apparently an engineering issue? All right, here's the questions, here's the answers, he said, and stretched his neck. First, the captain and I were in the Marines together. I was actually his superior officer. Then he had the rest of the crew put a lot of stock in my logistical and tactical insight. It saved more than a few of their lives in the past, including against you. I grew disillusioned with command and let him run the boat. 
but he still asks me for advice a lot. Second, I am a competitive bodybuilder. Humans consider physical strength to be a matter of competition and sport, but unlike bulkier competitors, I am not an eternal cut. My muscles are three times denser than a normal person, so the only crewmate who can outlift me is the captain, who is a professional strongman. A similar competition with different goals and practices. Finally, on top of what I told you earlier, the ship is fairly new age, and everyone knows that running it is a matter of software management more than anything, which I am specialized in. I can fix most of the ships remotely through bypassing a theoretical routing change. Slightly dazed by the sudden knowledge that the small human she'd all but written off was actually one of the strongest, most dangerous men on the vessel, say Lift, was quiet for the rest of the session, which was a planning phase for everyone's character. She chose an orcish wizard. What the hell do you mean my fireballs haven't recovered? We're just long rested, demanded a furious three-armed clan Ifa over a tiny steel muscle DM. Cthulhu's eyes on you, he shot back, just as hotly. You can't get long rest. You can't rest at all when an outer god who controls the dream realm is fucking glaring at you. Why is he looking at us? We have the protection of Hasta, don't we? You sold the golden statue. It was an effigy of the Yellow King, an effigy of Hasta. He doesn't have your back anymore. No one does. Captain Darius sighed as he watched the recording, sent to him in an email titled, Another One Has Joined the Coven, from his buddy in engineering. Colonel Durst had apparently converted another one. First the bug, then the blue giant. God, it's like he wants to spread it to the whole damned galaxy. He frowned deeply. She'd sent him a box of hand-rolled cigars, ones she'd made herself, which happened to be his absolute favorite thing. How in the hell had she known about that? End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1885 Story number one. Humanity doesn't submit. Written by Fox Corp. Picture this. You're an aspiring emperor with a massive shoes to fill. Big guns, big money, big aspirations. Now stop imagining and learn of the Crag Imperium. They laid claim to the biggest empire ever known, with the biggest ship, the biggest guns, and a brand new emperor with unlimited power. After his father's death, Primus ruled Dolphus, or the eager, ascended to the throne. It was from here that he began a relentless campaign of war against much of the known galaxy. And he won with every step. The ancients of Sagittarius, the wise of Norma, and the mighty of Perseus. Each had mighty fleet, but when faced with the fury of the crag battlecruiser, all surrendered to avoid terrible losses. When a small and disjointed union of systems within Orion was encountered, the council of Emperor Rudolphus wasn't even called. Small strike groups were sent to make vassals of the mere hundreds of worlds controlled by, you guessed it, the human. Before I get ahead of myself, let me explain how warfare commonly occurred within the Milky Way. Opposing fleets would meet each other on the battlefield, all lining up in an honorable display of might. The two fleets would approach in massive broadside lines, firing the full fury of their arsenal while still within visual range. This form of combat was intended to minimize the casualties of unpredictable stellar warfare and limit collateral damage. Not only that, Battles often lasted only hours, and wars only days. 
It was seen as cheaper to become a vassal to a superior force than to lose expensive treasures. Fleets attacked each other until one side was placed at an obvious disadvantage. After this, the losing fleet would surrender and retreat for repairs. This process repeats until the winning fleet reaches a substantial system from which the losing fleet doesn't retreat, finally fully surrendering. In most cases, this is the end of hostilities. Now, these tactics weren't used during the first contact, but played a critical role in the Crag-Human War. The galaxy had never seen war last more than a year. No doctrine ever foresaw a possibility of such a horrid war. Logistics were planning accordingly, only enough for a minor conflict with minimal casualties. No one, not even the first contact species, was willing or able to fight a substantial conflict. The mentality of most species was simple. Strike first, strike fast, and don't get struck. From every world, only those who had adapted to such strategies would thrive, and the tactics of galactic nations reflected this. Humanity went in an entirely different direction from the beginning. It was as if they had forged to be perfect machines of war. It didn't matter if a human was struck. If they struck first, or if they were slow to act, any species that challenged humanity was destined for. If you struck them, they would strike you with everything they had, giving no regard to casualty, only wishing to spite your attempt to come out victorious. After sacrificing everything, they would strike you over and over until your ability to fight was completely shattered and your empire left a smoldering ruin. As soon as the Crag Imperium decided to attack humanity, their fate had been sealed. Humanity sacrificed every last ship within the system called the Haven just to prevent the capture of the planet Bastion. The sub-faction of humans living within the system were outcasts from the authoritarian nation-state within the greater banner of the United Nations of Man. The freedom-loving humans fought to the last in a spiteful attempt to prevent their capture, and it succeeded with a terrible cost. The small subjugation fleet was destroyed in full but the humans lost over one million souls for every ship they managed to destroy. I will now play a recording of what is now widely regarded as the most influential speech of all time, the promise of vengeance speech, delivered by then-president Julian Starman of the Free State of Bastion. When we gaze to the stars, humanity has always seen a land of endless opportunity. After the tragic events today, only fear and uncertainty can be seen. When unknown vessels come to our bastion of liberty, we attempted to greet these aliens with all of the hospitality, generosity, and kindness humanity can give. We received only a torrent of plasma once our diplomats reached visual range. Long-range communications picked up only these words in response, Do you submit? The answer was no. Ships began to fire from longer ranges towards our planet. They fired indiscriminately, seemingly going so far as to target civilians. Our brave defenders charged their fleet time and time again until all that remained of these aliens were burning heaps of steel. 15,275,300 and 95 of our citizens were killed. Millions more are still missing. 
99% of the deaths were civilian, even as we fought them in the void of space. Their weapons continued to fire towards the helpless on the surface. Even as our ships split theirs clean in two, they kept repeating, Do you submit? We would only respond with gun. Their cries got more and more desperate, yet they never ceased their bombardment. To anyone who can hear this, Mastion will not submit. Humanity will not submit. Our ships will not submit. Until every last individual involved in the deaths of innocent civilians have been brought to justice. No matter how long it takes, no matter how many of these aliens get in the way, justice will be achieved. Let it be known, well, Cosmos, humanity will never submit. It took hundreds of years to truly manifest, but the effects of the speech reverberated through the Milky Way for the rest of time. Humanity turned its loose union of independent planets into a singular entity, focused on the protection of all mankind. The Krag Imperium resisted, of course. Thousands of the mightiest ships in the galaxy rampaged through human space for decades, but each eventually fell to death by a million guns. Humans could lose billions of people, thousands of ships, and dozens of systems, yet the resource strain was simply too much for the Krag Imperium to bear. The previously loyal vassals sprang up in rebellion, turning the Imperium's fleet against itself. Internal opposition within Krag systems wrought havoc upon the Emperor's ability to control his population, and many dozens of worlds declared themselves independent. All the while humanity festered and grew strong. The wreckage of the Krag ships was broken down and scrutinized for every last atom by human scientists eager to learn their secrets. It wasn't long before the reverse engineering secrets of the once mighty empire came to cast destruction upon the last remaining crag battle groups in human space. Primus Rudolphus the Eager could only watch in terror as the ancients of Sagittarius, the wise of Norma, and the mighty of Perseus, alongside their newfound human allies, charged into the crown system. His once mighty and revered fleets, still clinging to their honor-bound doctrine of warfare, were cut down like a field of grass. He could only sit on his throne in shame as a human strike group infiltrated his palace and stormed the royal chamber. As he was dragged off to his throne in chains, he stared towards the great murals and portraits of past emperors, wondering if he would be the last. When standing trial for his crimes, he asked the now old and decrepit president, Julian Starman, Why, didn't you just submit like all the rest? Julian Starman mastered this as a response. Submission is the acceptance of defeat. There was still light at the end of our tunnel. As long as even one human remains alive in this galaxy, that light will never go out. Humanity will never accept defeat. And if humanity remains undefeated, humanity shall never submit. Prisoner Rudolphus the Shameful lived out the rest of his days in a prison situated in orbit of Bastion. Every day that passed he would stare at the ever-growing lights on the surface and slowly come to terms with the fact that his reign was over. 
The era of humanity had begun, and his was but a footnote within the history of humanity's ascendancy to the stars. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1886 Story number one. When the gods stopped singing, written by Hicks Kem. The gods have long watched over our world. Every child knows the comfort and tranquility of falling asleep under the night sky, seeing our many gods twinkling as they pass over, crossing the wide star paths in their own unique ways. We know them not to be stars themselves, because the ancients struck their path and saw how they wove between As they watched over us for hundreds and thousands of years, a few of our wisest souls sought to know them better. They learned to shape glass to bring the light closer, that we might see the true shape of God. They shared the gift with the people, and we saw their gleaming wings drinking up sunlight and moonlight and starlight. Sometimes, when the gods saw us seeking them through the curved glass, they would shake their little starlight off at us, in beautiful reds and blues and greens and whites. And for a time, it was good. The years, and the wiser souls turned to the shaping of metal into ears. For surely, if the working of glass would allow people to see faces of the gods, surely other workings might let people hear their voices. And so the wisers toiled for years and years, and at long last they learned to listen well. At first they heard only chirps and beeps as though the gods were calling like the many feathered flyers across the land. And so the people came to treat the flyers with respect. For surely, the voices of the gods matched those of the flyers. Then the flyers must be revered as well. And still the wisest toiled and searched, seeking ever deeper truths in the gods. And when at last the people had grown and raised children with respect for the flyers and peace in their hearts, did they at long last hear the secret melodies hidden behind the chirps and beats. They listened to the beautiful, powerful, ethereal music of the gods, the songs that played endlessly to any who wished to listen. The people learned to capture this music and repeat it back for each other, and cities rose to the sounds of joyous song. And for a time, it was good. The people learned to create their own music in offering to the gods. And again, the wisest one worked and toiled and learned to speak with the voices of the many gods and sent their songs up to them in gratitude and adoration. The gods, hearing the wonderful songs the people given so freely, took the songs and wove them into their own. And the gods and the people sang together for many glorious years. As the people sang new songs to the gods, so too did the gods sing more songs to the people. And the wisest listened and learned from these new songs, and lifted themselves up from the land, and explored beneath the black water, and found all the wonders of their world that the gods hinted at. And the people sang new songs of the new wonders, and the gods twinkled with joy in the skies, and sang ever brighter songs for the people. And for a time, it was good. Until suddenly, it wasn't. 
Bright rage burned through the skies from the darkness beyond the gods and struck the people's homes. The rage roared, drowning out the voices of the gods, leaving people alone in the darkness. The rage lashed out at the gods and turned their forms mortal. Casting, burning, flaming metallic god flesh down into the world. And the gods stopped singing. No more could the people hear the voices of the gods. Nor could they see them in their beds. And with the falling of the gods, the gates of hell opened above. And demons in the service to the rage poured from the blackness of the sky. And the demons sowed such suffering that the people knew the harvest of souls would soon be a great bounty for the demons. The wisest of the people took on the aspects of the bravest of the people and worked in hidden places where the demons had not yet found them. And they, they composed one last song to beg for intervention of any god that yet remained to listen. They cast the song upwards into the skies. A mournful, heartbreaking song. Part despair, part requiem. And as the song left the lands, the demons found the last hidden place and destroyed the singing machines, the wisest. Though, there would never again be a song to the gods, the people. And so the people despaired, bowing to the demons that they might spare the children or elders some small bit of the people cried silent that night at the loss of their gods and of their dignity and of their souls to the rage and its demons from the blackness beyond one's home of the lost gods. Then, in the darkest of night, as the demons cackled over the sorrows of the peoples, the gods returned with a mighty and powerful song and every city and village heard every singing box awaken to the new songs of the vengeful gods. Above, the gods' bodies were larger and brighter and stronger than before, and the gods sent legions of their angels down upon the world to stand among the people. Pillars of holy flame struck the ground and gave way to reveal towering figures holding implements of wrath of many gods. And with these implements, the angels wrapped the god-flesh metal laid waste to the demons, placed themselves between the people and their oppressors, and soaked in the rage of the demons as though it were nothing to them. And the angels, so filled with fury at the demons' treatment of the people, cast aside their implements of wrath and tore at the corrupt flesh with divine and righteous strength. The bravest of the people stepped forward and worked to lift the implement from the dirt that they might aid these angels. And so, with the people finding their souls restored by the presence of the divine, they joined against the demon. And with the oldest of the god songs rising from every voice, they yet drew breath. Angels and people crushed and broke the demons. When the fighting was done, the angels stripped away the god flesh coverings and showed their true forms. The people looked at these strange angels with their faces so different, and yet somehow familiar, and sang a song of sense. The angels holding up the tiniest of gods close spoke strange quiet sounds, 
and the tiny god sang the words to the people. We are humans, and you're safe now. And with no more words, the angels put back their god flesh upon their bodies and rose away on their pillars of flame to hunt demons across the stars. And as they left, the larger, wrath-filled bodies of the gods returned to the joyful, light, singing bodies of the people had loved and lost and finally regained. And the song sang a new song to them, mixed with all their old familiar ones. When you are ready, we will be waiting. End of story. Story number two. Preventative maintenance written by Joe Two underscore zero. Would you stop oiling that thing? It's got to be half a thousand cycles old. No amount of oil is going to keep it going, the youngest Volcor among them said, waving its hand at the .50 BMG machine gun that sat foremost in the sandbag emplacement. One of their Terran auxiliaries looked up from his much newer-looking battle rifle. Excuse me, he said, but did I just hear you talking shit about Ma? The Volker looked confused as the grayer muzzle around him chuckled. The Terran continued, I'll have you know that Ma, sweet old Darlene over there, has carried us through thick and thin, so I think you ought to apologize. The young Volker blinked, unsure as to what had just happened. Instead of an apology the Terran had demanded, he replied flatly, It's a gun. The Terran growled. He had never heard a Terran growl, and it was among the most disconcerting things that he had heard from any of them attached to his company. She may well be a gun, but she's our gun, goddammit, so you apologize to Ma, or I swear I'll put some sense into your mutt. The young Volker was startled by the Terran's arguments, and he complied, his almost centaur-like form sliding over to the heavy machine gun and muttering a short apology. Now kiss her cheek, the Terran said, and the Volker shot him a look to kill, but the Terran just smiled smugly, lacking any of other resources. He pressed his muzzle up against the M2's faded but well-oiled side receiver, where the parkerization was nearly gone, and made a smacking noise. Hey, guys! The shout caught him off guard as he jumped up. It was their assistant gunner, a Volker nearly younger than himself. I found the headspace gauges! He sat in his haunches, dumbfounded. It had to be a coincidence, just dumb luck. He looked over at the Terran, who just looked even more smug than before. Told ya! End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1887. Story number one. Arms Race, written by British Tea Company. From across the stars, thousands of ships stretched across the battlegrounds as formations were established between Terran and Xena lines. Having taken a position in the orbit of a shattered planet deep within a gash cloud, the Terrans had the advantage of obscurity on their side as they were able to hide some of their backlines from scans. Judging from the fact that cruisers and destroyers were taking up the majority of the Terran frontline, their battleships and dreadnoughts were probably hiding behind, utilizing the gas cloud to their advantage. It wasn't unlike the Terrans to have their heavier vessels in the back, and to pull them up only when the knife fights began. In the prow of every Terran battlecruiser and dreadnought was a weapon known as Bifrost, a gigantic energy weapon which could burn through dreadnought armor like tissue paper. Due to the relatively long charge rates and reload time of these weapons, 
It made sense for Terran heavy ships to snipe enemy vessels as they approached and to unleash hell upon other weapons once they got too close. To counter this, the Xenos had altered the schematics of their dreadnoughts to counter the Bifrost. These dreadnoughts, known as shield ships, had the ability to not only boost, but to create massive energy barriers around entire armadas, which would provide more than ample protection against the Terran-dreaded prow weapons. As demonstrated in the initial stages of the battle, the carefully hidden Terran dreadnoughts and battleships, while hard to detect by strike craft, were ultimately unable to do much damage to the enemy fleet due to the shield ships. Another trump card which was why Xeno engineers were able to use against the Terrans happened to be a weapon called the Repulsor Torpedo. As mid-range combat began, this torpedo was fired straight into the heart of the Terran fleet. Massive anti-gravity wells began to push the Terran fleet, primarily their battleships and dreadnoughts, some of which were in the middle of priming their prow weapons straight into the waiting jaws of the strike craft and torpedo boats. Of course, among the dreadnoughts sent into the bad positions happened to be one stand straight into a perfect spot, having a cloaking device much to the surprise of the Xeno Armada when it decloaked straight in front of their fleet. The results were stellar for the Terran. This dreadnought was a new secret weapon of the Terran fleet, a massive kilometer-long warship with circling band of drones, each equipped with an experimental laser cannon. The prototype was excelled in knife fights. As the Xenos found the drones circling around their orbit, around the ship's body, countless beams came raining down in the cone of death right in front of the dreadnought. In less than three seconds, over 179 ships met their demise as their Terran fleet regrouped itself right behind their new weapon, cutting straight into the eighth fleet. What should have been a decisive victory against the Terran invaders had turned into a massacre and military flop as the first fleet was utterly annihilated within the span of a minute. The second and third forced to retreat after sustaining 76% casualties. The failure listed here went to command to defend against these extragalactic invaders. The Council would have to adapt quicker. Weapons developed today could very well be useless tomorrow. To the Terrans, they continued on with business as usual. A species that had been racing one another for who had the pointiest sticks while they were still using little pointy sticks wasn't one who had to worry about flexibility and battles to come. And of story. Story number two. Programming written by Fork Ufa. Captain Zinvok had several questions, one of which she already knew the answer to. The gainy face of the low-resolution combat simulator that was somehow playing on the menus in the ship's galley appeared to be terrible. Of the 150 members on board the Tullmax Zup, there were only five terrors. Their eccentricities vexed her to no end, but the Grand Executive had deemed them a necessity. Of those five, only one knew how to access the subroutines that controlled the menus. This could only be the work of Tech Officer Sully. Tech Officer Sully, would you be so kind as to explain how there came to be a Terran combat simulator displayed on the hollow menus on the ship's galley? For her part, Dana Sully looked proud of herself, but given the captain's grey skin was already turning turquoise with annoyance, she resisted the urge to engage in sarcasm. Well, Captain, it comes down to programming languages. 
Nonsense. Even systems on your home world will still have compatibility issues with each other, and you expect me to believe that the archaic program from your world is compatible with one of our modern systems that wasn't even designed to run anything remotely similar without a complete rewrite or some unauthorized modifications to our systems. For the most part, you are correct, Captain. However, there are certain features that will always be present in any programming language, namely a limited set of states, an infinite amount of storage, and a transition function. The programming question relies primarily on these features. With only minor adjustments, the program in question can run on nearly any platform. Zinvok was shocked at what she had heard. So, what you are saying is that your species created a combat simulator so basic that anything capable of processing mathematic equations can run it. That, uh, actually explains a lot. And makes total sense for your species, but, uh, that doesn't explain why there is a combat simulator on the galley's hollow menus. Dana let out a sigh. Captain, we've been out here for three weeks and, uh, with all due respect, Grellian Media is boring. I had to find a way for entertaining myself, and of all the systems that I have access to, the galley seemed to be the least disruptive to the experiment with. I was bored, and I wanted to see if I could get the Gret Tech to run Doom. End of story. Story number three. The Sundering, written by Provisional Rebel. The Convocation is the Union seat of power. It is a station dedicated to diplomacy and peace, where every species and government, no matter how small, has to have a voice. At times, this peace has been strained, but it has not been broken since the Sundry, almost 100 years ago. Since then, where every species has a chair in the Convocation's main hall, there are three empty seats. The first is covered in a black cloth. They were the Calv, and the first to fall as victims of their own hubris. They were an ancient race, with untold mastery over technology. But this mastery bore poison fruit when they created the intelligence, a malevolent artificial intelligence which devastated their society, and whose infiltration was so total by the time it struck that only a pitiful few escaped. It was their final act to devise of a method by which the galaxy could be saved. The second is covered in a blue cloth. They were the Dajol, once brittle rivals and as equally ancient as the Kelv themselves. It was by their industrial might that the Kelv's final plan was to be enacted. Their forged worlds worked tirelessly against the expanding devastation of the intelligence. Their codesmiths fought a battle every bit as desperate as the front lines against the tendrils of the intelligence's subversive influence. Ultimately, they lost this war and suffered much the same fate as the Kalb. It was their final act to deliver the means of our salvation to the Convocation. The third is covered in white. They were the humans. A young and small race who, in the time the galaxy knew them, had proved themselves to be a brave and courageous in the face of overwhelming odds. It was them who had built the Convocation and established the Union to bring peace and stability to a time of pity tyrants. In the end, they were the only species who stood to accept the burden. They were given everything, the full technological knowledge and remaining assets of both the Kalb and the Dutch Owl, and 
took with them the Sundra back to their home system. The intelligence was as yet unaware of the nature of this device and had hounded the Dutch Owl to the convocation. Its pursuit immediately shifted to the humans upon learning they had been given the device, and the final stages began. For two years, the humans were able to hold out on their home world, the energy signatures of the device building all that while. The intelligence knew it was time was limited, and so it poured more and more of itself into the siege. Until finally, the critical mass was reached and reality tore along the seams. The Sundra was a trap. One which was not just capable of disrupting subspace, but obliterating its very structure on the astronomical scale. The intelligence's neural pathways were linked to subspace, and so, with the destruction and so many of its processing power drawn to the region, the intelligence was broken, and its remaining parts were hunted down by combined forces of the galaxy as a whole. The victory was not to be shared by the humans, however. Without subspace, FDL communication, and jumps are impossible. They ensured the survival of the galaxy and all of its people, but they would never be able to join them again. It was not their final act, but in their isolation that we will never know what that will be. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1888 Story number one. The Grand Champion, written by Sasanic. The tournament had been going strong for almost five days, and almost 200 contestants had assembled in the subterranean metropolis of the Garvey, large-scale covered bipedal reptiles who mined the magma lace caverns of the Andromeds. They worked in unison with the dwarven cities, who mined the jewel and crystal-rich caverns that the Garvey had cleared with the earth-moving magics. The Garvey had hosted a tournament for any and all aspiring warriors to claim the prize of a thousand various precious stones after beating the many, many rounds of pre-chosen champions. As a result, the nearby Garvac and Dwarven cities had generated immense revenue, chock full of tourists and travelers who thirsted for bloodshed and the fury of the tournament. King Father Yok chuckled heartily, his three chins wobbled and his chest jiggled with joyous laughter. Before him in the arena, the massive fawn of a Grabica towered over the broken and battered bodies of three dwarven gladiators, limp and bloodied from arduous combat. Grabica snarled something in his Gravac tongue and swung his massive axe threateningly at nothing, drawing cries of admiration and fervor from the multi-species crowd. Again the winner is Grabica, the bloodthirsty! Ruffryuk bellowed throwing his arms out theatrically at the crowd, who responded with rapturous applause. The massive grab warrior at the arena's center looked up at the king, who gave him a courteous nod. And I believe that concludes today's combat, and in turn the grand championship! The crowd's cheers pummeled the king's eardrums, and he couldn't resist but to wince at the sensation. Not yet, sire, another gravic at the king's side whispered. There is one more opponent left. Oh, Brathyuk, he replied. Well, bring them forth. He looked out of his balcony at the crowds. It appears I have been mistaken, friends, for we have a single opponent left for our champion to slay. To this news, the crowds already deafening cries reached a crescendo, and the very foundations of the arena felt like they would trim. The king nodded 
to one of the attendants that lined the arena, and they disappeared into the side passage. A few seconds later, the contestant portcullis rose, and from the darkness within, walked alone figure. The crowd's cheers fell silent quickly, and the sound of all the Gravics present sniffing the air to determine what this news contestant punctuated the eerie atmosphere. Mumbling of all languages and dialects created a dull murmur as the figure walked towards the center of the arena. The king, too, sniffed the air and let out a surprised gasp. A landstrider, huh? His voice croaked. Welcome, surface walker. You have the honor of being the last contestant of the tournament. The figure, now completely bathed in the light of the arena, looked up to the king and he spoke. The landstrider, more human as they were known among their own kind, wore a set of thin male plates that covered their body and fully enclosed helmets sat on their head. A shoulder cape, the color of bright crimson, hung solemnly from a pauldron, and a plume of similarly colored horse hairs ran from the crown of the helmet down their back. The figure lifted a gloved hand in greeting to the king and crowd, and unsheathed their sword from their hip. Commonly, most contestants and gladiators wore either thick plates of armor or bore massive weapons capable of scaling scores with a single blow. This was the same for humans, too. But for their size and strength against any race bigger than them, they tended to lose a lot. The sword that the human drew was not a broadsword, or a longsword, or even a magic-bound sword, but a busket-hilted sword with a blade as thin as one's finger and as long as an elf's arm. Delicate, look, and more so to use in aggression or combat. King Blathiok chuckled himself. This will be quick! That poxy little thing won't even scratch Gravica. He mumbled to his advisor as two warriors in the arena circled one another. He had seen plenty of humans come and die at this very tournament alone, and knew that this fight would be over in moments. My sire, the human has defeated 31 contestants, Bathyuk's advisor quietly commented, and hasn't had a blow land on them once. I fear that we might underestimate this landstrider. Call the fight off until tomorrow. Let Gravikurf rest fully. We can then poison the humans so that they will be guaranteed to lose the fight and... Enough! I acknowledge your concern, but I have our utmost faith in Gravikurf. The king interrupted, ushering away the advisor so that he could watch the fight uninterrupted. The massive Gravik leapt at him, who pirouetted around and sliced their sword along Gravikurf's exposed leg. The blade left behind a thin trail of blood, and the human adopted an almost mocking dueling pose with one hand behind their back. And guard! The human muffled voice beckoned, enraging Gravik. Again, he leapt and swung in an arc that would have sliced any living being in two. But the human, again, seemingly melted around the Gravik, delivering another slice to the exposed part of the reptile's flesh. The process of swing miss. Swing, miss, drove Gravica to almost uncontrollable anger. And he began to swing and slash with the axe and his spare arm. His attacks, random and unplanned. The human dodged and avoided each of the wild swings. And in turn, thrust or sliced another part of the Gravic's skin. The king grit his teeth at the blatant display of mockery at the hands of a landstrider and stood on his pulpit with fury. Kill the bastard already! He roared in his species tongue, 
and both the Gravik and human kept attacking one another. With a faint white swing of their sword, the human made a few meters of space between the two. Oh! Of course, the human bellowed back, before effortlessly dodging another swing and plunging the needle-like sword straight through Gravika's throat, making the pointed tip exit through the top of his spine, subsequently killing the massive Gravik instantly. The crowd fell deathly silent, and the sound of the sword being withdrawn from Gravika's throat and the wiping of the blade piercing the silence. The king stood at his pulpit, his mouth silently forming words of sheer amazement. The human sheathed his sword and lifted their visor. The human under the armor couldn't have been older than twenty years, as their eyes shone with naivety. Thin pink lips and pale skin suggested that the human had never seen any form of combat outside of the safety of training room walls. So, um, who's my next opponent? A soft female voice asked, lined with joy. Anyone else? I... Uh, how? King Bothyuk stammered words caught the human off guard, and she raised an eyebrow. I know. You share my shock and joy, it seems. I think I'm doing pretty well, seeing as I've never actually done anything more than spar with my fellow trainees. The crowd's silence broke as a single audience member rose to their feet. What is your name, human? They asked. The human turned to the audience member and curtsied. My name is Cassandra. First year student of all hail Cassandra, the grand champion. The audience member roared. Instantly, the crowd joined in, chanting her name and screaming praises in every tongue that resonated off the walls of the arena. Cassandra hastily turned to the Fathiuk, who now shared his confusion and shock. The what? End of story. Story number two. Rage Beast, written by Chain Blue. The thing glared at Korea. It shook in rage as a malicious rumble emitted from it. Pre-digestive fluid leaked from the flesh-rending teeth of its maw. Korea observed the small beast from behind the barrier. The barrier appeared to be effective, but he still felt an instinctive desire to withdraw into his carapace. It was a terrifying creature, but this was the first time in a Terran structure, and as he guessed, he was determined to give no unintentional offense. As an exercise to order his mind, he classified it in his thoughts. Small, two, maybe three kilograms at most, fur-covered, vertebra, mammal, quadrupedal, relatively large front-facing eyes with round pupils and large ears as well. The nose was out of proportion. Predator, definitely a predator. It could probably hunt by sight, sound, and scent. That seemed excessive, likely Terran in origin. Of course it was. The humans probably engineered this thing to be a weapon. He mused as he finished his cataloging his insights. Hey, Korea, did you find something to drink in the fridge? Called the human Bob as he heard. The game's about to start. Bob looked down at the snarling demon from their side of the barrier and said, Oh, I forgot that biscuit was in the kitchen. You should probably stay on this side of the baby gate, noted Bob as he stepped over the barrier. Chihuahuas can be a little arseholes, Bob explained as he scooped the tiny rage beast. Bob brought the death machine named Biscuit to his face and cheerily cooed. Who's a little arsehole? You are. Yes, you are. Yes, you're my little Biscuit arsehole dog. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1889 Story number one. The third truth written by Glitchkey. 
I walked through the ship's air, blinking away the fog from the fault in the pressure system. I looked around, and the slightly flickering light, early secured cables, and worn deck plating spoke of a very old ship. A hand came down on my shoulder, and I spun around to face its source. It was tall and bulky enough I should have heard him coming from the other end of the pier. He grinned as he met my gaze. Welcome aboard, Sprout. You're our new comms officer, right? He chuckled as he gave me a once-over, reading me like a two-bit flimsy. Fresh-pressed academy uniform, too. Uh, straight out of academy, I bet. I nodded, then hoisted my pack up on my shoulder and started following as he turned and walked down the corridor. My eyes opened as the deck shook, power lines sparking and sirens waiting, like an army of mothers in beds too small, in rooms too empty. I rose, and everything went white for a moment. It felt like an ice pick had lodged itself to my spine. Smoke billowed through the decks like a party good enough to call the cops was just around the corner and I looked at the flickering and cracked screens of the front of operations. It glowed crimson for a moment, and the deck shook again. The captain glanced over his shoulder to make sure that I was keeping up, then spoke again, the deep rumble of his voice reverberating off the bulkheads. So, kid, what do they teach you about the forbidden band at the academy? I blinked. There wasn't any reason to think this was a trick question. But asking that has about as much point as asking why someone eats. They say they're not to be used as com frequencies on pain of death. So they still don't teach you anything about it? The captain turned along enough to wink at me before taking the next turn. That's good to know. But the... The captain held his hand up and I stopped. No, no, it's true. A few turns and an elevator passed us silently as an old ship can't make them. And then we were in operations. So I've got something you need to learn. You see that switch right there? On your comm console? I looked, and there certainly was an odd switch. Aftermarket and poorly hacked in, with the bright blue light harder to miss than the side of a mega freighter you're about to plow into. Yeah? I stared at the screen as the ships approached, their guns blazing and shields uncaring about whatever we used as a rebuttal. As smoke continued to fill the room, the blue glow of one of the consoles drew my attention for a moment, and I dragged myself towards it, inch by endless inch. The ship shook again, and the enemy shots finding their way more often than not. Elegant birds of prey crossed the screen in front of me, cats playing with the little mouse that they'd managed to pin to the ground. That makeshift patch, or one like it, should be on every comm station you ever work. He tapped the station, then gestured vaguely towards the supplies along the rear bulkhead. If it isn't, you'll need to know how to add one. It switches you over to the forbidden band. Why were... He started speaking again mid-sentence, his words short and clipped, because they didn't teach you anything about it. His eyes softened as he looked at me, a worn smile crossing his face like a dancer who should have retired long before. And if you ever have occasion to broadcast on the forbidden band, you broadcast this file and nothing else. His eyes hardened again as those last words. A wall that said that there was nothing to see behind it. Nothing uh, else. What's on the... He held up his hand again, 
and wagged a finger at me as he continued speaking. I'm getting there. I'm getting there. It is much. He shrugged his shoulders, moving like they had the world to bear. Just a few sounds set to broadcast the loop. And no, I don't know what they mean. Looking away for a moment, he glanced at the forward view screen and the endless distance between here and everywhere else. Nobody this side of the starburst does, in fact. Crackling and flickering light filled the room as power failed and backups came alive. Shadows danced all along the walls like revelers looked too much to drink, and cracks spiderwebbed across the part of the viewscreen, tapping what was there for a few moments longer than the rest. The shaking had stopped, the ships outside no longer firing. There's no point in gutting a fresh kill with a gun, after all. It ruins the flavor. But kid, that forbidden band is important. If life is as good to you, you'll never have to use it. He turned to face away, his gaze locked on the crew stations and the people who weren't manning them. But if it isn't, well, if things gone sideways so wrong they can't be fixed. His voice slowed, and the wall spoke his words as much as the captain himself did. If you're looking death in the eyes, and those eyes look more friendly than what's left this side, that's when you use the forbidden ban. I reached the console and flipped the bright blue switch hard enough to snap the end off. A few moments later, and I had the old file queued up and ready to send. As the ships turned and approached our airlines, I dragged myself up to the consoles and leaned on the broadcast button, holding it down more with the weight than world. The captain turned to face me, his crewmen's hard enough to forge a good knife from red-hot steel. You don't use it before, and you certainly won't be able to use it after. As he continued to look at me, his eyes softened, and a smile returned. But let me tell you, there are three truths in this galaxy. New ships appeared on screen, their guns firing dull blue and their shields at full glow. Some of the pirates died with the first sulfur, but others turned, their scarlet shots ripping off at the new arrivals. Shot after shot. Yet their aim was never true. Not once did they hit these unwelcome strangers, and not once did these new ships miss. First, death comes for everyone at some point. The view screen glowed bright as the ships began to die. Bursting like rotten fruit they were. Flecks and sparkles of plasma glittering against the dark deeps behind them. More beautiful than they ever were as ships and crew. Second, Taxes get paid, no matter what it takes to pay them. The ships moved closer, desperate for a hit, and their aim was true, but the hits were not. As their crimson bolts of plasma splashed across the white shields of the interlopers, they faded and splashed on through the depths, bulkheads, and crew vanishing before the reforming behind the deadly blasts. Nothing could hit them, for there was nothing there to hit, and that nothing bore a grudge older than empires, one that burned brighter than the stars that no longer filled the sky around us. And third, nothing can touch the ghosts of terror. End of story. Story number two. All the Nightmares Came Today, written by Darth Hath for Depression. 1947. The Cold War begins. Humanity is divided once more. 
1950. The second border expansion armada identifies Earth as hosting intelligent life and prepares for invasion. Two months later, both contact is made along with demands of surrender and demilitarization. All major powers unanimously tell them to fuck off. War is declared and three warships lay siege to America, Europe and Russia. 1951. All three warships are successfully grounded through the use of heavy artillery and high-altitude bombing runs, as well as the use of one atom bomb, and are dismantled to be reverse-engineered. FOS, Federation of Saviors, infantry are easily defeated due to human chemical propellant ballistics providing to be too powerful for their shields, as well as severe susceptibility to human psychological warfare and fear tactics. Mechanized units are also taken study. Newly developed ground and orbital artillery now prevents any FOS warships from touching down, as well as retrofitted force fields and already existing civilian bunkers preventing orbital bombardment from halting the progress of the new warships. 1952. Combined scientific ventures of all major factions produce a basic armored spacesuit that utilizes a load-bearing exoskeleton to increase mobility and carrying capacity. This prototype is then used to create more specialized suits for the USA, the Commonwealth, and the Soviet Union. Psychological tests and captured aliens show the severe incapability to deal with stress or shock, leading to a prioritization on tactics designed to exploit this. 1955 Sister ships of the USS Dreamer and HMS Champion are launched and engaged to edge of the FOS blockade. The blockade is forced to retreat after only being able to minutely damage the two ships. The USSR finally develops and launches the Stalingrad. Captured ships are returned to Earth for further fleet development. All three battleships form a defensive blockade until all armies can be outfitted with the new exosuits. 1957. The human armies are prepared for invasion. They set their FTL drives to the closest known FOS-occupied worlds. Outfitted in solid armored spacesuits, their soldiers cast glowing red eyes upon the heavens as they march towards battle. Veterans who manage to escape the chattering ballistic weapons and flame guns often speak of the human's appearance on the world that they were garrisoned on, describing it as such. All the nightmares came that day. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1890 in trade we trust. Written by It Was Then That. The immense glass dome of the Deuteronomy station rose above me, an impressive statement to how far we, as a species, had come. I had been wandering aimlessly through the gardens of reflection for the past half an hour, counting down the time until the celebrations began. I stopped at a thirty-foot palm tree and, in that moment, the absolutely absurdity of a palm tree growing in deep space hit me like a ton of bricks, causing a wide, slightly manic smile across my face. I leant against the trunk as mirth took me, and I slid down until I sat upon the grass, back against the tree, and giggled as I stared up through the glass. Deuteronomy Station was truly immense, without exaggeration. Staring upward through the dome, I could see the trading base where the Goliath-grade cargo ships docked and transferred their wares. 
the station sat on the junction of four main lanes of trade along the starway. Not an accident. Dizzying amounts of wealth passed through at any given moment. Like any port, there were whole wings devoted to relieving the modern sailors of their hard-earned credits. Habitation hubs had been added that could provide a home for any of the 32 species that made up the members of the Trade Federation. Half of the buildings were filled with workers of the entertainment districts. There was even small government buildings that housed an ambassador from Earth. The Trade Federation had an entire city, of course, as it did anywhere that business was done on a large scale. An immense hundred-story scraper modeled off those in the mid-twentieth century New York City. It was, in some way, almost aloof from the rest of the station connected by a filigree of crystalline walkways and nothing else. It looked as though, at any moment, it could fly away. I looked down from the sky and across the park to the statue of Gregory Mansfield that stood prominent. The man who had saved humanity. The earth that had been on the road to depletion. How impact undeniable, and yet still not enough to stop our headlong rush into self-annihilation. There were many arguments as to what had finally forced us to notice the damage we were doing. The increasingly erratic weather was a popular reasoning. I fell into another school of thought, the same one, in fact, that was held by Mr. Mansfield himself, the plague of dogs. No statue of Mansfield was complete without his two bull mastiffs lounging at his feet. It was said that their deaths were what propelled him into action finally to put his incalculable wealth on the line to turn all of humanity to a common goal. Survival. Funny that he had to be helped to survive. It seemed that such an inherently human trait to survive. But when you think about how many pointless deaths could be listed throughout the ages, you realize that perhaps we only fool ourselves on that count. The plague of dogs changed us. Even people who had never had a four-legged companion knew that there was something broken and wrong with the world that we built. I don't think there was a dry eye on earth the day that the last dog died. The disease that took them was brutal. No DNA survived. They were lost forever. Somehow we pulled ourselves back from the brink, led by great men and women like Gregory Mansfield, Eloise Hasthorne, Artemis Binderi, and Shashquin Murabank. The Great Four, still honored throughout the galaxy, wherever humans settled. We cleansed the earth over many, many years. We took a good look inside of our own hearts at what it meant to be human, and what it was really wanted for our species, and... Naturally, that led us to aim for the stars. Most species in the Trade Federation consider humanity's rise to the galaxy-wide power to have been accomplished in the blink of an eye. Birth contact made at Alpha Centauri was the start of our expansion phase as we had a technology that leapt us forward a thousand years. It was Mansfield, deep into his third century of life, who saw the potential niche for humanity as traders amongst the stars. Those had been the days of the collective, the loosely bound group of alien species who had banded together to face the void. 
They'd been eager to bring into their fold any other species might strengthen them. In those days, the void was not the safe place it has since become. It had teeth. We learned from the technology given to us and throughout the new one wondrous applications for it. The collective had FPL, but it wasn't all that fast when considering the distance and it cost enormous amounts of energy to calculate routes and match velocity with your desired destination. We changed that in the Starway, introducing near instant travel. The massive gates took care of energy requirements, incomplete Dyson spheres fueling them. They negated the need to calculate a route and handled your velocity for you. We, and by we I mean Mansfield, built the system slowly, but steadily, until there came a time that every planetary system had a gate of its own. The clever part, the true vision, was that every gate led to a junction, great nexus of travel, like Deuterotomy Station, meaning that all trade, all travel, must pass through. Naturally, every junction was controlled by humanity, by the Trade Federation. The Starway had served another purpose, fleet movement. Suddenly the Void had found itself impaled upon the tip of humanity's spear, as our warships move vast distances in moments, able to react to every skirmish and attack by outside interlopers. We pushed back at those who inhabited the fringes and had no wish to join us. That was perhaps one of the darker moments in our history, as we had never really understood the knife's edge those fringe dwellers existed upon. They had become complacent with feeding off the collective, and once the easy dogger was gone, they starved. I still remember as a child seeing footage of floating hulks full of emaciated corpses. If we had known then, perhaps we would have done things differently. But we didn't, hadn't tried to understand. Even when knowing what we did, we inflicted genocide on the void. Deuteronomy Station was little different to most junction stations, for it had one of the largest science habitats to be found anywhere in the galaxy. That's where I come in. I'm one of the many scientists who have devoted their lives to the advancement of humanity in some way. I'm not sure anyone truly knows all the work done in the numerous science labs, but one thing is accepted throughout the galaxy. The Deuteronomy Science Habitat is where the cutting edge becomes reality. I stood up and took a last look at the palm tree and chuckled again. I was in a giddy mood, after all. Why wouldn't I be? A year ago we had granted a new species the title of human, the highest honor we ever gave. They, the Tulukuans, had had some tech that caught my eye, advanced even beyond our own capabilities. I turned and began walking to the presentation hall which would be filling with hundreds of journalists and VIPs. My presentation was planned and prepped. I'd come to the guard to calm my nerves. I was ready as I could be. I stood in front of them all, a lone scientist on a quest, a quest that had lasted 2,000 years and which had driven me to the edge of despair a thousand times over. Sitting in front of a row was Gregory Mansfield himself, my sponsor, through all of these years, the room was hushed, expectant. I had explained the technology, 
how my team and I had managed to build atom by atom the billions of connections in a single spiral to create a single DNA strand. How we had done it again and again, piecing together a full sequence from a million broken ones that I had collected. The moment was upon us. I reached down into the basket hidden behind the podium and pulled out the little fella into my arms. He yawned, and the room erupted. Two thousand years worth of every moment to finally, once again, hold the puppy in my arms. A bull mastiff, no less. End of story. I would quickly like to thank the T5 channel members and Patreons. Casper Arnholtz, Cam Maxwell, Barky, Lord Azrakal, It's Difficult to Pronounce, Dragzoon, WRE, Holly's Sister, Arcadian. Thank you very much.